Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. Hey, it's Matt from the Direct-to-Video Connoisseur here. Thanks again for listening to the DTVC podcast. Before we jump in, I wanted to quickly let you know that my new novel, A Girl and a Gun, is available on Amazon now, both on Kindle and paperback. It follows Justin, a successful writer, whose past as a scriptwriter for a fetish porn site comes back to haunt him and threatens to derail his career. As he's picking up the pieces, he gets an opportunity to make a movie called A Girl and a Gun with a rom-com star. Justin may have bitten off more than he can chew, though, because she's notoriously difficult to work with. If you're interested, you can find the link on our webpage, along with the link to my first novel, Chad and Accounting. If you have any questions, please reach out, and I thank you for the support. Now, on to the podcast. joined once again um, by screenwriter Tom Joliffe. Uh, did I get did I get the pronunciation right this time? Uh, yeah, that's good for me. Or Joliffe, close, right. Close Jolliffe. enough, yeah. Joliffe, yeah. yeah. Joliffe, there we go. Okay, that's better. Uh, but uh, he's the, the screenwriter of a uh, current film that's out right now um, on Prime. Uh, well, as we're doing the recording, it's available to rent on Prime, and also you can buy a hard copy of it. It's uh, When Darkness Falls. We think by the time this, um, this episode airs, though, that you might have more uh, streaming options for it. Yeah, so I think we should have, uh, I think, Hulu, and then beginning of September, we're looking at Tubi and Peacock. Excellent. And then, and, and, it, and then for, and this is just for the United States, right? The, the UK will be coming later. Uh, yeah, so just US at the moment, and then we're just sorting out uh, other territories as we speak. So, yeah, hopefully a few more before the end of the year, and may, maybe the UK, so we'll see. Perfect. Yeah. And if anybody wants more information about that, um, uh, if you go back in the archives, I can't remember exactly what number episode it was that we did. Um, but it was it was only a few episodes ago come from this one. Um, you can go back and see that we uh, we talked about the film in much more detail. Um, and then, of course, there was a blog post on it as well. So um, so if you need more information, um, go there. But definitely uh, a film everybody should be checking out once it's available in your territory. And um. On top of that, um, Tom, you uh, also write for Flickering Myth, and um, I know um, I think you had two articles post today where, of the day we're recording this. I think by the time uh, this episode airs, you'll probably have a bunch of other ones be, uh, between now and then. Uh, yeah, I can imagine so. I think I tend to do 
two between sort of two and three a week so i never quite know when they're going to go up so yeah it'll um yeah there should be quite a few up between now and then yeah i the one that you had so it's it's a couple of days ago the one that i uh, um uh, that that really caught my eye was um, an article that you did about '90s comic book adaptations, which I think is a a fascinating read in the current movie in a TV environment. Yeah, it kind of struck me that I'd, I I was sort of looking back over a couple of films that, around the time just before I wrote it, um, including Barb Wire, and then I just started thinking about how many of these kind of films that were being made at the time. Um, you know, before everyone was sort of. Uh, you know, firing them out, you know, trying to make something stick. And, you know, very few of them kind of worked. But it was an interesting time with lots of interesting characters, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of my kind of favorites, which I've read, I think Lori Petty does not like that she was in the movie or something like that. <laughs> I've heard of people that aren't, aren't big fans, but uh, but Tank Girl was one that, that really fascinated. I, mean, I don't know, I just, I, I kind of yeah. dug that one. I mean, it had Iggy Pop and Ice-T and all kinds of, you know, Malcolm McDowell and all that. But um, it's a, a very, fat, you know, I think movies like that would still maybe get adapted nowadays, but it does feel like there'd be maybe a little bit of a fear around a tank girl. Like they want something that could create a franchise or something that can, can yeah. move, you know, pull a lot of, uh, uh, you know, tank girl would probably be used for like a, 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 a mini series or something like that now. I think, yes, yeah, certainly. So I think that's one of those films that kind of, I mean, it, well, pardon the pun, but it tanked when it came out. Uh, but it's kind of grown in time. I think there's been a bit more appreciation, but I think it was almost slightly ahead of its time, I guess. I think people are kind of a bit more into that quirky style. Um, you can see that it, it sort of quite heavily influenced Birds of Prey, I think. So, yeah, it's a bit more in vogue now, that kind of film. Yeah, that's a good point, because I I, I think... You know, Birds of Prey for me was was a real interesting one. Um, I mean, I, I like you, McGregor, but I thought the villain he was playing was that that character was a little bit interesting. I think he's kind of like a, a in terms of of Batman baddies go, he's like way down the list of of baddies. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was I think the way that they they kind of you know at a time when 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 Hollywood was still not sure what to do with with female led comic book movies. Um, it seems like in the 90s, they were much more willing to take those kinds of chances on that kind of thing. Um, but only if there were these quirky projects, right? It wasn't like they, you know, yeah. they, it, they still didn't touch Wonder Woman. They still didn't touch you know, some of those those big names. But Barbed Wire, Tank Girl, that they, they were fine doing one of those. Yeah, I guess m maybe it was something to do with the cost. Maybe all the Marvel and DC kind of things to get the rights to do the movie might have cost a bit more. So they probably took gambles on, you know, more obscure stuff. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it is it, it is fascinating too when you look at like what Marvel, you know, I, you know, they were kind of starting to transition into being what we understand Marvel to be, but then it was kind of also kind of a hiccup too, right? Because it was like the early nine or the early two thousands that you know Marvel was making movies, but they were all still the standalone kind of things, and they had like they're, they're kind of varying degrees of quality. Like I think um, I know Daredevil is one that people pan quite a bit, um, and. And then of course they made the Electra sequel off of it, um, and and so it was like. But I think in the '90s, I think you start to get like Blade, and and there's a sense that like, okay, we can make, we can use some of these these comic book franchises to make movies that the technology might be there or something like that. And then it it sort of goes and then it fades away, and 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 then you get Iron Man. I guess what was that like, oh eight, oh nine, something like that, where 
yeah there's suddenly a concept of like oh what if we put them all together and and make them these interwoven things and and you know put a huge budget behind them and all of that and it, it changed the whole thing for us yeah definitely i think it was a unique idea and i think it's it's quite a good it's quite a gamble really because you've got to rely on audiences kind of coming to this one and then that one and you know some of the films you'll go in and then they'll be referencing things that you might not have seen in a film before but they're kind of catering to the the audience i think that's going to be seeing pretty much all of them so you know if someone's referencing you know two or three films back on a different character um you know they'll kind of get the reference i think yeah yeah i so it's funny because i haven't really been keeping up with um much of the the marvel cinematic universe stuff but i remember when the buzz was out that kingpin was in the hawkeye tv series and and i ha had seen the daredevil you know tv show and that was on netflix and and so yeah it's like the idea that like you know for somebody who was just watching the movies and just sort of you know thinking the movies were great and that that was doing enough for them and maybe they were sort of dipping their toe in the tv shows they find out that here's this character who was in uh seasons one and three of a of a full you know that uh, you know three season run um of daredevil that they you know and of course Mar uh you know disney plus ended up picking those series back up from from netflix but yeah that idea that suddenly like oh do i need to go back and watch a tv show that i probably <laughs> didn't watch before yeah i think i for me there was i think black widow i was watching um and they were referring back you know to stuff that was happening in i think iron man 2 or something yeah. um as far back as that and i i was a bit lost on the kind of references so yeah sometimes it can go a bit too far but yeah generally i think it's worked quite well for them to link everything together yeah and i think that was like one of the things that i think with comic book movies that made them maybe not work as well initially that marvel cinematic universe taps into that i think did work was that in the comic books they the characters were were somewhat connected that was interesting because in the comic books they would have their own storyline so like if spider-man showed up in daredevil it, it didn't necessarily affect whatever was going on in amazing spider-man or spectacular spider-man or something like that uh it was just him appearing in daredevil but it was just the fact that they could all appear together that you could see them all together and in these these you know the um the, the the way that theatrical movies were done in the 90s i think kind of really 80s 90s um into the early 2000s was that marvel didn't like to give out a lot of their characters at once i think that was like the big thing with the fantastic four movie that you could have the fantastic four and doctor doom but you couldn't have anybody else you, you that was it for that movie yeah. you couldn't use anybody um, and and it, it did lead to some interesting things because of course with the rights agreements where fantastic four and um X-Men went to Fox and um, included in Fantastic Four was Silver Surfer. So then when they decided to do the Infinity War saga, they hadn't gotten the rights back. They hadn't, I guess um, Disney hadn't bought out Fox yet to get those characters back. But then, so you're now you're doing that movie without Silver Surfer because he's included in this other deal. Or, <laughs> you know, Sony had to, yeah. had to lend um, Spider-Man to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Or they almost got to, I guess, collaborate together on it so that Sony can be included in that kind of thing. Yeah, it's very, yeah, very complicated, I guess, behind the scenes. And then obviously at the moment, Spider-Man's in a whole kind of other issue, sort of being kind of halfway between Sony and Disney. So that's going to be quite interesting to see what they do there. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think that was like, you know, in the 90s, it was much more common that that, that all of them were siloed. That, you know, if you, I mean, you know, the, the Punisher movie with, with Dolph, it's like, yeah, there wasn't going to be Spider-Man showing up, even though he, you know, had his origin in Spider-Man. And then when they make the Thomas Jane movie, same thing, you know, he doesn't appear. Um, and then we get the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They introduce him there in Daredevil with Elektra in there. And it, it does, it just has a kind of a different kind of energy when he's introduced with, you know, with somebody else or in somebody else's movie, as opposed to uh, just being his own thing. And he doesn't exist with anybody else. And he's just doing Punisher stuff in this one, you know, sort of siloed universe. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if it kind of carries on that way or whether, you know, that kind of that trend will sort of burn out a little bit. But yeah, we'll see. I guess it's a kind of an interesting phase coming forward. Um, yeah, with Marvel. Oh no, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, with Marvel, that the the next phase is going to be quite interesting because I think there's been some, there's been a little bit of an underwhelming feel, I guess, with the latest one, um, off the back of you know Endgame and Infinity War. So they kind of need to sort of be getting up a level with the spectacle and everything. So it'll be quite interesting to see you know what they do to kind of keep fans on side. Yeah, I think from an investment standpoint, it was a lot easier before the TV shows. And I think before with the TV shows, with like, you know, like the, the ones that they did on Netflix where you had, uh, you know, Daredevil, Punisher, I think Iron Fist and um, and uh, what else was there? Um, Luke Cage. Um, oh, so um, Jessica Jones. Those were all their own little thing, kind of self-contained within themselves. And you didn't have to watch a bunch of other things to know what was happening you know you, you, you could just watch those those shows and they also came out at a pace that made it easier to follow them i think it was like almost like one of them would come out a year or something like that or every other year or something so it wasn't like you were getting something like i you know it feels like with the marvel cinematic universe they're pumping out something like every you know three or four months there's a new you know uh, tv series to watch or something like that and um I think that's that that might be where the fatigue starts to come in. And it was something that I think Netflix is realizing now, even though Netflix is probably dying because, you know, having trouble because they're losing content. But also they would make these TV series that were like 13 hour movies that would just, you know, you'd get the fatigue in them. And I think that's kind of what Marvel is doing, you know, what, what Disney's doing with these. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, I, I thought The Mandalorian was a very easily bingeable one because the episodes were only like a half hour of a piece. And I think that that kind of helped for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think so. But I mean, even, you know, I think at the moment, Star Wars and Marvel are getting a bit oversaturated. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, Disney's doing quite well at the moment. They're now the number one streamer, aren't they? So they're doing something right, but it's just whether they can keep just pumping stuff out and, uh, you know, maintain their audience. Yeah, and, and not push it, right? Because, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I didn't realize, I guess the, the, the She-Hulk show is, is only about a half hour an episode too, or like a little bit more than that. So I guess it's, it, it, in that sense, it's not so bad. I know on, on the... um. The Netflix show, the episodes were like a little over an hour apiece. But yeah, I think that's the key is that it was a lot easier when it was like, what, three or four movies a year total. And then, of course, you know, Disney's mindset with putting out those movies every year was, well, we need to hit like certain spots of the year. So we're going to put out this one in the summer, this one around Christmas, maybe this one in, in sort of the spring or new, you know. So so like 
because of that strategic need to like make the most money and put them out at certain times, they they were trying to saturate the market. But now I guess there's a fear of like, well, if we don't keep pumping out content for this Disney Plus thing, people aren't going to want to subscribe to it. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, they're, they're all competing with each other. I think Disney's probably got a sensible idea because I think most of their 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 um, Marvel and Star Wars things tend to be short form, don't they? So they're, you know, they're about 30, 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're quick, quick and easy to watch, really. Yeah, I think that is that is kind that, that that's something that is something I, I, I miss a little bit myself is that it's I think with like the Sopranos and the wire and other shows on hbo there's a move towards tv episodes being longer that um you know uh, you know obviously with hbo there's no restriction there on how long the episode is it can be over an hour if it wants it can be whatever it wants to be and so there were some sopranos episodes that were a little over an hour that do feel like more of an investment and i think that was what was happening with netflix series i think um i think all of the uh marvel shows that were on netflix the kind of those defenders shows a lot of the episodes were over an hour um and and it, it could be a little bit of a drain which i think like the mandalorian i think i cruised through those seasons pretty quickly because that you know half hour piece and it's also very easy to say i can, I can watch another one for a half hour for sure yeah well I, I think that's it really um and even if they've got you know one or two episodes here and there that are a little bit filler you know, it's only like half an hour, so you, you're almost on to the next one. I think with Netflix, some of their stuff, uh, because, you know, that it goes on from maybe an hour, sometimes just over, um, there's a danger that, you know, they're waiting down, you know, too much into these episodes, and, you know, they're getting a little bit overstuffed. Sometimes it's filler, where they, you can say you can see they've spread it out too thin, really. Um yeah, so, I mean, that's happened with a few of their shows. And then if you lose the audience, that's a difficult thing to get back. Yeah, and you, know, you make a great point, because I was talking with um, uh, uh, Mitch Level from a video vacuum. Uh, he was on, we were talking about the movie Pig, um, with uh, the Nicolas Cage movie thing that uh, got a lot of buzz in, in you know a, a year or two ago. And... One of the things I read about that movie is that the original running time for that was two hours and 21 minutes. And you know they cut it down to like about an hour and a half, which feels like the perfect length for that movie. And I do wonder if one of the things with Netflix, it seems like when I go through Netflix and I'm paging through the movies there, a lot of them are in that sort of two hour, two hour, 10 minutes, two hours, whatever, um, two yeah. hours, 20 minutes. And I do wonder if that's something where, you know, and I don't know if this is something for you as a screenwriter, if, you know, if you write a film and, um, either if you're told in advance it needs to be this many pages or if you write it and it's like, OK, well, no, this needs to be trimmed down. You know, if, you know whoever's distributing or something says this this can't be that long because um, that's what happened with Pig was that somebody said, you know, this was you, we, we can't do anything with this at this at this length. You've got to cut it. But with Netflix, maybe they don't have that that. That that governor on there, but I don't know yeah, if, that, if that's something that you experience as a writer. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something I've experienced with certainly indie horror and indie action pretty much every project i do on a commission is you know they say you need to hit around about you know 85 90 pages to you know get a 90 minute movie so that's kind of what i'm working to and but yeah i do ha i have noticed on netflix and things that um there's a lot of movies that are kind of two hours two hours ten 
but they're kind of getting these directors in that they're kind of given you know free reign at you know to some extent and it's on the platform already so it's not like they're having to impress you know this you know distributors here there and everywhere um so they they almost indulge a little bit i i feel like certainly like if you look at martin scorsese doing you know four hours of the irishman that's a bit i mean i I liked the film but it was a bit indulgent for me to be that length yeah i I completely agree there it's it's interesting because you take a movie like goodfellas that's like i think it was like two hours and 20 minutes long or two, you know, something like that. But it doesn't feel like there was a wasted moment in that, that two hours and 20 minutes, two hours and two hours and a half. Whereas, yeah, like the Irishman, it, it's like, I mean, you know, it, it, it was definitely one of, I think I did it in two parts because it was, it was such a, <laughs> uh, an investment. And, yeah. and it is that, that idea. I mean, I don't think a distributor would have let, I mean, that's part of the reason why probably why he went to Netflix was that he probably, he had the idea for this movie and distributors were like, you know, I, I, what are we going to do with this? We can't put this in the theater at this length. Um, and, and I mean, I know it did screen um, on, on theaters here because I think Netflix wanted to have the prestige of it possibly being nominated for Oscars. So they they did screen it on theaters in the United States and probably across the world. But I, I do wonder and, and, and it is one of those things where, you know, I think from Scorsese's standpoint, he would think, well, I'm a, I'm a you know, I'm an artist. I'm, a, I'm an auteur. Like, you know, I shouldn't have a distributor telling me how long my movie should be. Uh, but there is a sense maybe, too, from a, a, an entertainment standpoint, right, that you've got to sort of trim these things down a bit. Yeah, certainly. And I think sometimes it's also down to cost. So particularly with the budgets I'm working in, you know, the shorter the movie, the less you know shooting schedule you need. And then less days you use, the less cost it's going to be. So that tends to be why I'm doing sort of things around the 90 minute mark. I don't think they're, they, you know, they're pumping so much money into things at the moment, Netflix, that they're maybe not so worried about, um, you know, saving too much money. They've got quite a lot of films that are costing, you know, $100 million plus. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's a good point, too, right? That, like, yeah, if, if you don't have to, if you can get it shot in like a week or if it needs to be shot within a week, um, yeah, yeah, making it quicker too and I, I remember I talked with um somebody who um I, I can't remember the name of his movie I think it was like the the, the coven um he you know he's a, an indie filmmaker in England who um you know he'd, he'd made this film he sort of wrote and directed it and the movie itself came out to about 105 minutes and one of the things he mentioned about that was he was still kind of learning the ability to sort of do you know sort of the the one minute per page uh approach to it and i wonder like even with that kind of thing if like the movie if this distributor if if the director kind of takes your script and makes it a little bit longer if the distributor's like well we need to cut something out of here somewhere yeah i mean i would i would imagine so distributors tend to you know it's rarely the other way around when they want more put in so it's usually they want things cut out um but yeah, I guess it's different for every kind of production and every sort of studio. And, you know, Netflix have kind of got their own way of doing doing things as well. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see, I think, maybe sort of how all of this plays out. Because it, it, it is, you know, with each of these different streaming services, how they all have a, a sort of unique uh, thing. And I, I guess probably, too, in, in England, it's probably a little bit different than it is in the United States with some of the um, the machinations. Like we have the, you know, the Peacock uh, network is free or it's included if you have cable through the comcast uh company so for example here in philadelphia 
Comcast pretty much owns Philadelphia, so they're everywhere. So, so of course, we, we get our cable TV through Peacock, and then Peacock is included. And then also what's included with Peacock, if you either if you subscribe or you uh, if you uh, have it included in your, your, your cable subscription, is all the English Premier League games. So I, I think there's only like maybe one or two a week that are not included in Peacock, at least for live uh, viewing. Um, so, you know, in America, anybody here who's a fan of a Premier League team and they want to watch their team every week, that's like an added incentive. Or um, uh, the Paramount Plus Network, they have all the rights to the Serie A. Uh, so anybody who has a Serie A team that they follow, they'll, you know, pay the extra for Paramount Plus. And then, of course, you know, I think Showtime can be bundled with Paramount Plus. And so all of them have that. I think Disney, you know, for example, they pair up with ESPN Plus, which for me is big because... ESPN Plus has all the NHL hockey games, but they also have like, you know, La Liga and um, the uh, the English Championship um, division. So that that that's the second tier there. Um, so it's interesting too, like how Netflix is kind of they're kind of out on all of those kinds of things because they don't right now at the moment have any sort of connection to any of those other areas, like like sports leagues or things like that. Yeah, I guess that's probably, you know, part of the reason why their business model is starting to kind of go down downhill slightly. Because I'm pretty sure they've they've consistently been operating on a loss as well. Um, and yeah, they're lo- they seem to be losing subscribers. Yeah, because I mean, I think a lot of their the things that they wanted, you know, like a, a lot of it is their own content now, because a lot of what they, I think they want to be able to show the other these other streaming services have pulled it, but then, yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean the other, like, like a major league baseball here in the United States, um, Apple TV has a game that they air every Friday. Peacock has one that they air every Sunday morning. So that's another piece of it. I think um, YouTube airs major league baseball games. And so I, I think a lot of these sports leagues are teaming up. I think, you know, the, the NFL, of course, the biggest one here in the U S like they've teamed up with Amazon to, um, to, to air games on Amazon prime. So, yeah. So it's like Netflix, and I don't know if Netflix has ever cons- – I mean, the one that Netflix did have a lot of success with was they had a uh, – I think it was like uh, uh, a documentary series that was airing at the same time as the Formula One season. And that did do a lot of business to pull people into watching Formula One here in the United States because in the United States, Formula One has never really been a uh, been as popular, I think, as it is in, in Europe. Yeah, it's- yeah. You know, that was one area where they've been able to capitalize a little bit, but they don't have any live sports. And I think that's a big piece for, you know, in the United States. And probably, I mean, I imagine probably in England, it's a little bit different with, um, you know, what what leagues are aired or anything like that. But, uh, you know, because so many of these these networks have, you know, they're, they're sort of parent networks that have deals with the major sports leagues, they're able to air content that gives them an advantage over Netflix beyond the fact that Netflix, they're, they're also taking their content back from Netflix. Yeah, I think, you know, that's, it's all quite interesting. And I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, what these, these uh, companies do going forward and how they kind of evolve. Yeah. It's, it's a very fascinating thing to think about, right. From our standpoint, because I know we're, we're going to be talking about uh, Cynthia Rothrock here in a bit. We're going to be talking about two, films from the you know one from the late 80s one from the early 90s that were like absolute you know you um you know video store uh gems that you know people would just you know i i can remember renting them from the video store at, at that time 
And it's amazing how we've seen this market shift so much in, in our lifetimes where, you know, the VHS was a was revolutionary, you know, I, you know, came out in the late 70s, but when it was sort of democratized in the 80s where, uh, you know, VCRs or, or VTRs were, were cheaper and easier to get. And then you had the sort of that shift from that to DVD. And now we're, we're seeing this streaming uh, thing that's not only, you know, revolutionized how we watch movies, but also TV shows and how we interact with TV as well. And, you know, we're, we're seeing that all happen in the span of like maybe 30 years. And, 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 and like you said, we don't really know where it's going to go from here because it's already gone in so many different de- directions that we didn't expect. Yeah, I think, you know, certainly it's an interesting one. And it's, it's one of those I've never been, you know, I've never quite understood exactly how you quantify success and, you know, what is important to studios like Netflix. I mean, back in the video store days, you know, you would you would know how well you did by how many tapes you rented out, basically. So, you know, it's difficult. You know, how do you kind of quantify what is a success and how do you know which films are the ones that are pulling in new subscribers and things like that? So it's interesting, but, you know, obviously they have their their way of working out what is valuable and what isn't. Yeah, and Netflix from what, you know, I think what we were reading, like with things like, um, was it was a Bird Box? Was that the one that had like the huge buzz around it? Um, yeah. With, yeah, with that Sandra Bullock. Like one of the things I've been reading about with them is that what they publish as success doesn't always equate to what they see of as success because sometimes they want to generate buzz around something or make something seem more successful than it is to get more people on board with it or make them seem like they're doing better when, you know, I mean, I, I think with, with sometimes with ones like Bird Box, they count, you know, somebody who uh, maybe fell asleep while watching a, <laughs> uh, it, you know, and started in on the next one. Yeah. And it's like, how, how much of it counts as an actual stream? Is it watching half the movie? Is it the whole movie? Is it, the opening 15 minutes and and like you said right like what do they consider to be successful if you know every you know bird box has you know a million 15 minute views is that considered something and it's like i think maybe from them in terms of them outwardly telling us what's successful that might be a, a rubric that they might use to be like oh yeah you know bird box had however many million views but maybe you know a large percentage of them were just like people, you know, falling asleep and having the, the first 15 minutes before they turn it off. And yeah, like what, what they consider success and then what they tell us is success is another piece of it where before it was very obvious. It was like, okay, the Nielsen ratings box, or like you said, you know, the video store, the person who owns the video store knows like, okay, I, I, I pulled in the Cynthia Rothrock movie, China O'Brien, and it just, I have trouble keeping it on the shelves. I'm going to buy another copy of it. It's that popular. And the next time another Cynthia Rothrock movie comes across in the catalog, I'm going to pick that up right away because it seems like those really sell. And um, yeah, it's it's kind of a very easy marker of success, I guess. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, producing the movies and making them, getting them distributed, it was kind of, it was a lot simpler, really. You'd know that if you've shifted, you know, if you've made $20 million worldwide on a tape, you know, that you're going to make something else with the same star and it's going to be, you know, they, they would put, you know, a reasonable amount of money into it. I think with the streaming thing, the only down, the only negative really is that the, the sort of payouts and buyouts aren't really that high comparatively, you know, to what they used to be. Um, which obviously that drives the budgets down, which drives, you know, the shooting schedules, 
Um, so, I mean, there's negatives, but I, I guess, you know, it's that massive, you know, surge of content that people are trying to keep up with. And then, you know, films are sort of, they are cheaper generally in the indie world, but, you know, it's also easier than it's ever been to make movies as well. Yeah, and you know, kind of dovetailing on that, I know, um, you know, some of the films that you um, were commissioned to to write screenplays for are on Tubi here in the U.S. And I yeah. think that that model is very different because it's like, you know, the distributor is sort of gambling that enough people are going to want to watch it for free that whatever the ad rate is that they get, whatever percentage of the ads they get, will 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 cover it. And you know, will the name be enough to get people in to watch it? And, and I guess that's another thing too, right? Is that from the distributor standpoint, how much ad revenue makes it successful before they pull it from something like Tubi and just say, okay, we'll just keep it on Prime and have people pay, you know, $3 or $4 or something to rent it. Yes, yeah, certainly. And I know from an in indie perspective at the moment, um, you know, AVOD, so things like Tubi, that seems to be the big thing at the moment, you know, where films are making their money. More so than I think, you know, transactional, because it's, it's quite difficult particularly if you're a very low budget film or if you haven't got a name to kind of persuade someone to pay, you know, two ninety nine for a rental. Whereas, you know, Tubi, you know, people generally, they'll, they'll give you that first five, 10 minutes. And then if you can manage to hook them in and you've got them for the whole film and then you're making a little bit more that way. Yeah. I know I, I talked with a director who um, he, he, he kind of transitioned into mostly doing, um, documentaries the name's up jay horton but he was talking about that kind of that that idea of like when he first releases the documentary he puts it on prime and just you know collects the the streaming numbers or whatever and i i think he started using tubi as well and then he was saying like okay if it hits a certain point where it's not getting the free streams then he'll move it to prime because if he just gets one rental it'll be worth more than you know the minuscule amount of streams he might be getting at that point yeah it's you know it's one of those things where you have to kind of be on top of it and uh yeah jay horton definitely knows what he's doing in that regard yeah he's i i follow because so i kind of know him because he he can't he reached out to me early you know kind of you know in my um i think i think it was in the late 2000s maybe early 2010s um with a movie he was doing called monsters in the woods and um i i remember i i kind of liked the movie but then i think i made a comment because i was listening to the uh the um the audio commentary and somebody that was on the, the film with him was joking about how you know the, the, Glenn Plummer was in the movie for like five minutes and he was joking like oh yeah you got to get these stars in for like five minutes and then splash them all over the cover and I was kind of annoyed because I'd, I'd been hit by too many bait and switches in my time with, <laughs> with big name actors or something um, but I remember he had me watch a couple others of his movies and and he's had an interesting track record because you know he you know um, he did a movie called Trap that was kind of his own real indie film that I, I really enjoyed uh, but then I think he did another one called um, what was it called Deceitful, um, something like that, where it was like a, a, a company had a prop a property that was like I think they were going to use it for a telenovela originally, and then they wanted it to be like a Latin American drama, and then they decided to make it an urban drama, and that's when they called him in. So it had gone through like three or four rewrites already, and then he had a buddy that he worked with who like helped kind of make another rewrite. And, and it's interesting because, you know, without talking to him about it, you wouldn't know by watching the movie that it had that kind of Frankenstein history to it. 
but then you find out from him like, okay, well that, yeah. So there are some moments that are a little bit more inspired where he tries to put his stamp on it or he tries to make the best of the situation. But it, it is one of those things where sometimes when, when you get something on, on a 2B or something like that, you don't always know what the history of it was. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're just going by a thumbnail and, you know, the, maybe the plot synopsis. Um, it's in, interesting, and I've seen it I've, since I've been writing the movies myself and kind of seen the evolution in my scripts and then the evolution to screen. I've kind of seen that that process, and it can be, you know, quite interesting. And they they can be very Frankensteinian. Yeah, I imagine that must be. Yeah, I know we, we've talked about this um, when you, when you were on last time too about how um, you kind of like 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 I mean, what, was it um, was it the the Amityville, um, the witches yeah. of Amityville? Was that the one or yeah. where you had um, originally it was going to be two couples and then they changed to just four women? Oh, I think that was Van Helsing. Oh, Van Helsing um, one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Amityville witches was one where you know the the whole Amityville aspect of it was kind of added in somewhere down the line in production in um, the development process because the distributors suddenly thought, well, let's get in on this kind of Amateurville thing because there's so many, uh, you know, Amateurville titled films at the moment. So you know, that was kind of an afterthought, really. It, it was set somewhere else entirely to begin with. Yeah, yeah, and I think you you have another one that came out this year, um, Jurassic Island. Kind of a, a, was that kind of a similar thing, or was that one where they were like, "No, we want you to write uh, a, a dinosaur island movie." Yeah, I mean, it it was that from kind of from the beginning, but then there was um, there was a few you know plot points that they kind of changed around, or that uh, there was a thing with like uh, wormholes and things that I had originally. So it's a bit more kind of complex. Uh, but the distributors kind of wanted wanted it simplified, and then originally I was going to have them arrive on the island by you know like a big ship or a boat, and then I had to rewrite that because they couldn't get a ship. Then uh, I handed off the script, and then later on somehow or other a ship became available, so someone else rewrote the beginning to have a ship again, and it's just that kind of thing. Pretty much every movie, really. Yeah, so you kind of you you, you submit <laughs> what you what you have, and then yeah, you know, and, and is it something too? Do they tell you when it's coming out, or is it one of those things where you just sort of like, oh, okay, there, it's available, to, you know, oh, this was this was my movie that I wrote uh, that's on here. <laughs> well, um, well, like Van Helsing, I think last time I spoke to you, you said, oh, it's on um, Tubi, yeah, and I had no idea, and then I mentioned it to the producers and director. And they had no idea either. So, it you know, some distributors are probably better than others at kind of keeping the keeping you updated and keeping the filmmakers up in the loop, as it were. But you know, sometimes you just these things just pop up somewhere, or they'll pop up on a YouTube channel um, without anyone knowing, which is difficult because then it doesn't give you much of a chance, you know, to do your part in terms of marketing it or you know trying to get people to watch it and when you say it comes up on the youtube channel do you mean like um somebody like got a copy of it and uploaded it on there um or that like the, the distributors yeah. put it put it i there? mean okay occasionally it, they do get pirated and put on youtube and it's a difficult process unless you're gonna you know pay a companies to kind of uh 
get get them off the channel um but there are distribution channels as well now on um, youtube so there's one called v horror that kind of takes films on and it's usually just a small kind of exclusive window so they might do it for a month or two then it gets pulled and then it gets distributed via amazon then it might get a physical release so they kind of do it in stages now and you know like um Jay Horton said, sometimes it's a case of, right, I'm going to do transactional and then I'm going to try AVOD. And then if AVOD's not working, I'll go back to transactional. Um, I think it's just the case of getting as much of, a, of an impact as you can, really. And sometimes spacing it out can help. Yeah. And, and, and if a movie like, let's say the movie was, was pirate, let's, let's say like, um, you know, Jurassic Island that's on, on, um, on Tubi now or Wrath of Van Helsing, if they end up on, on YouTube illegally like that, um, does that affect sort of the commission that you got for the film? Or is it more like um, other people who's sort of maybe in their contract, um, they were supposed to get some of that, that revenue? I mean, I think it'll, it'll affect the, the distributors more than anyone else really. Um, yeah. Um, it's difficult. It's just piracy affects everyone. It's a hard thing. I think that's one thing about AVOD is that, you know, people will go to the official source because they can watch it for free. So that is one advantage, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I, one of the rule that I try to follow with the, you know, with, with YouTube is that if the movie is newer and it's available <laughs> um, either on AVOD or even just to rent, right? Like if it's, you know, um, like like a, a movie like you know I don't know like like The Gardener with Gary Daniels or something like that that's like um, but even like something that's not quite as new but it's available to rent on uh, on one of the streaming services I'll go there first and then if if it's an older movie and it's not available anywhere else and somebody's put it on YouTube then it's like okay yes um, I'll, I'll I'll go to YouTube to see it but I think that's part of the thing right is that when it's I, I think the other thing too with with, with that that Tubi in those places offer that's better is that they're going to offer a better quality print too than somebody who's just ripped it and put it on youtube yeah definitely because i mean you know for the most part they're put on with a level of care and you know, they've gone through qc um yeah so i mean that that's it i think even sometimes people will put something on youtube illegally and they'll still put it through with adverts and so they're trying to make money as well um <laughs> yeah it's uh it's difficult but you know you know, we've had to adapt to it and deal with it, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe this might be a good, good segue, too, into talking about Cynthia Rothrock, because I think the movie that we're going to be, the first of the two movies we're going to be talking about, China O'Brien, shockingly isn't available on any of the streaming sites, but also there isn't like a, a high quality Blu-ray available of it. Um, I think I think maybe in the UK there's a, um, a, a, a DVD for UK region, but I don't think the, there's even a, a USA Region One uh, DVD available for it. No, it's one of the. It's difficult with a lot of these early '90s kind of video films that some of them there's been you know companies that are long dead, so that makes you know rights a whole kind of very complicated issue. You know when you're trying to get a you know prints or you're trying to you know put something out on a DVD or a Blu-ray. So I mean, Cynthia Rothrock doesn't have many blu-ray releases which is a shame really um a few more in recent times actually which is good 
but it's difficult sometimes you you know your only option is to see a vhs rip on um uh youtube yeah and i mean yeah i think like you were talking about like i think the tiger claws movies are the ones that were recently put on, i think um was it vinegar syndrome that did the tiger claws movies or Arrow? Um, i can't remember it might have been vinegar syndrome and they've done another one called writing wrongs so oh, yes yeah and there's been you know one or two other uh cynthia films that have had a decent kind of hd transfer so you know hopefully that will be you know more common yeah because I, I think you know the two that we're going to be talking about here are are such that i think given some of the films that do currently have blu-ray releases on um you know like maybe like mvd site or, or you know um arrow or, or even you know some of the vinegar syndrome was like some of the ones that they've put out you you think like okay well how is china o'brien being left out of this or um lady dragon i i think rage and honor do have dvd like they're not like uh blu-ray uh dvd releases but i think they do have they at least have dvd releases here in the states yeah i can imagine so the other problem is even with dvds now um a lot of these these films would have been very early dvd releases probably and you know a lot are out of print so even if i could maybe look on ebay for a China O'Brien DVD, it's going to cost a lot of money because the price is going to be, you know, pitched up quite high. Yeah, I'm trying to think what I saw it listed as. Because um, I think, of course, in the United States, I think it was like $25 for that, you know, the, the Region 2 um, DVD. And then, I mean, I know I had to buy it on VHS when I reviewed it for the blog. I'm, I'm pretty sure I think that's what I did. Um, I'm, I, I think I've got a VHS copy of this somewhere kicking around. Um, and so I, I, I don't know where I, what I did with it, but yeah, just looking at the, um, the images here. Um, yeah, so that's what it was, was Netflix originally said that they had it, um, on DVD and it was like in this like very long wait category. So there, there must've been a DVD at some point that went out of print, but, um, I think I finally, I was like scouring <laughs> Amazon for like, you know, months, just like waiting for the time to come when it was cheap enough. And I, I was able to find, uh, a copy that was good enough. And at that time I had the ability with my computer, I had a, a program and, and a plugin that allowed me to hook my VCR up to the computer so I could get images directly from the VHSs. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So I, I think it would be nice if they, yeah, I think, especially for collectors out there, I think people, there are a lot of people that would, I think there are enough people that would buy uh, a China O'Brien Blu-ray that it would, you know, I think that it would be worth it. Yeah, definitely. And I think when you look at it, you've got the sequel as well. And then you've got Lady Dragon as a sequel. Um, so there's an, always that option that you can do, a, you know, a double set. Yeah, that's a good point, too, that, yeah, a, a lot of hers are, because I, I think that's what they did with Tiger Claws, right, that they put all three of them together. Yeah, so I can imagine that they've probably with sets like that they probably decide just to do it as a as a three a threesome really rather than doing them individually yeah and i mean i think that would be you know i think you know 30 or 40 dollars us i mean that's a it's a good amount of money but um i think it might be accurately priced for the the market of people that like to buy and collect these movies i think uh, uh, you know pairing them both together, putting them both together. I mean, maybe that's part of it. Maybe they're they're just waiting to kind of get their hands on both of them or, um, 
you know, there, maybe, maybe there is a, a plan in mind to eventually do these movies. Yeah, yeah, I'd hope so. I think um, there's definitely a market there. And I know that you know, physical media in parts of Europe, like Germany in particular, has always been quite a good place for physical media. If there's anything, you know, I've ever kind of needed that's been lacking elsewhere or that I can't get in the UK, it tends to pop up on um, Blu-ray in Germany. So even some of my own films, they've only really got Blu-ray releases in Germany, whereas every other territory is usually just DVD. Yeah, or, or yeah, and streaming's probably like a big part of it too that now. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, and, and I get that too. Like, I think that's one of the things, I know for me, um, you know, my wife and I, we don't do a lot of physical media, but I think sometimes with those collectors, versions it's like okay let's let's do it or you know like in, in your case with um with, with when darkness falls is an indie movie um i think that's you know i always kind of suggest that to people like if you've got the money um you know sometimes that's a good purchase just because you're you're supporting indie that way um but i think too like with a company like vinegar syndrome to be like okay yeah if you put out these these two china o'brien movies in a blu-ray and people buy it you know if it gets sold out then i mean i think like like action usa was one that did sell out when they first released it on vinegar syndrome and i think maybe that proved to them that like yeah the market's there for people to want to buy those movies yeah definitely that's it really you kind of do a limited run and then you can you know if needs be you can just make on demand after that yeah which it's another great part of the the current like industry is that you have that sort of on demand part of it where you don't have to feel like you're you're left with a bunch of stock. I think it's, that's a, how Amazon's model works with like with you know me self-publishing my novels. Is that like, yeah, they don't have to charge me anything to self-publish my novels. They just, you know, whenever somebody wants to buy the the hard copy of it, they just produce it at that time, take a cut for how much the paper and shipping cost, and then that's it. Yeah, I think that's a good way to do it. And I think also with these kind of special editions. Um, so like Vinegar Syndrome, we've got a couple of companies over here, like 88 Films, I think in the UK, does a lot of old Jackie Chan films and Rough Rock films, uh, Van Damme films and things like that. So, they, you know, collectors are still into kind of buying these nice editions, as long as there's a bit of effort put into making them yeah. as well. You know, you know. Um, so there's definitely a market there and it seems to be on the up. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, I, so I, you know, hopefully we're, you know, maybe, you know, people will, you know, come back to this podcast episode in a year and say, like, hey, you know, that, you know, maybe we'll get comments from people saying, hey, you know, there's a Blu ray. It's like, yeah, I, there is now. But, um, yeah, when, when yeah. as us, you know, talking about it, there wasn't. But, um, yeah, why don't we get a little bit stuck in on these two films? I think, um, when, when, when you were on the last time and we were talking about what, a topic my or you know who we might discuss if you wanted to come back on and rothrock came up um at the time i didn't consider the fact that she was at at 39 films on the site um so so i had just done new york ninja and you know because she did the voice of of one of the characters in new york ninja so she's now on the cusp of joining the 40 club which is a very it's probably you know obviously the the second most exclusive club the the most exclusive club it's the director video connoisseur is the 50 club with dolphin um, Gary Daniels, but then with the 40 Club after that, after those two, it's Art Camacho, Albert Pion, and Canon Films that have 40 films on the site. So she would be, you know, she'd be the first woman to join the group, but also from an actor standpoint, she'd be only the third one going in as an actor to have 40 films on the site. So it is kind of a, you know, a, kind of a big deal to be doing that many movies of hers. And 
I don't know about you. I always kind of see her in that sort of that top echelon of direct to video action stars that, you know, sort of in, from an all time standpoint, not even just like a, a certain window of time that she's definitely up there and not just as, 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 you know, one of the best women, but just, you know, best overall. Yeah. I think, you know, to some extent she got a little bit undervalued. I think um, she's pretty much, you know, in terms of her longevity, you know, starting in like mid mid eighties in Hong Kong, you know, there's only really been one person who's kind of, you know, uh, one female who's, you know, been a regular kind of action star alongside her and that was Michelle Yeoh as well um because obviously they started they both started in the same film um broke out together so you know in terms of the west and in Hollywood uh she's kind of been out on her own to an extent they've tried to you know launch a few people here and there like Kathy Long in the early 90s but you know Rothrock kind of stood head and shoulders above everyone else and I think partly because you know, she was as good, you know, if not better than a lot of her male contemporaries. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, one of the things I'd read, I, I, there's this um, online magazine, Hopes and Fears, that that did an article. It's like an oral history of PM Entertainment. And one of the things they talked about was there was this guy who was on the set of um, was it Guardian Angel, right? That's the one that she did for um, for PM Entertainment, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so she was... There was some guy, I guess, some kind of like, I don't know, some some odd dude who was like starring in one of the movies or, or was supposed to be in the movie. And I guess like he did some sort of some initial stuff with with uh, um, he did some uh, initial stuff with Richard Norton. And the guy said something like, well, it's, you know, it's, it's Cynthia Rothrock. And is she going to hit me as hard as you are? And he's like, now nah, she's going to hit you harder. And, and he was like, <laughs> OK, oh, wow. OK. And I think that that tells me with at least with Richard Norton is that I think he had a sense that like of, of, of what. Rothrock's talent was because you know with the movies that we're going to be talking about that he's in with her and I think you know you can also go to the Rage and Honor movies as well and you know kind of anything that the two of them did together I, I think there was a sense or I should say the, the, anything the two of them did together here in the states um, there was a sense that I think he wanted her to shine in those movies he wanted everybody to see how good she was which I think was really important because I think it would have been easy for him as a guy to be like yeah no make the movie about me instead of, instead of her yeah, I think, you know, Richard Norton, he's always, I guess he's kind of like the the classic laid back Aussie. So he was, he always seemed to be quite happy to, you know, play the bad guy or play like the sidekick in, you know, not just films with Cynthia, but a few others. Because he, you know, he's another one who's very underrated and, you know, very rarely got to play the kind of leading man. Um, but, you know, those two did have a very good chemistry together. I think. Um, what was interesting about her career is there always seemed to be a slight hesitancy from the, you know, the studios to put her in a film, you know, on her own as the lead. So, you know, she worked a lot with Richard Norton as, you know, they would partner up in films. Um, and then there'd be a few others where she was partnered up with Chad McQueen or yeah. Jeff Wincott. Um, and I feel like then maybe they could have had a bit more faith and just, you know, had a, basically take the film you know herself in you know a few of those because she did still she still tended to you know shine over a, a few of them I would say you know like Wincott and um, certainly Chad McQueen 
But yeah. I think when she was with Richard Norton, they had such a good chemistry that it kind of worked. You know, whether he was playing the antagonist or playing, you know, the partner or love interest. Yeah, he, you know, I think like, you know, when you mentioned Wincott, I think that's probably a really great example because uh, Martial Law too, right? Is that, that's the one that they do together. That yeah. one, you really can see the competitive piece of it, right? Where, you know, I, and I think part of it is the fact that, that Wincott was trying to establish himself as a, a, a martial arts action lead. And so there was a sense that, like, yeah, he wasn't going to take a step back to let Rothrock. But but I think in the way that that still works, that that dynamic still worked in that film, where he's really pushing to try to be the lead of the movie and she's pushing to be the lead of the movie. But I think Wincott is one that I really love. But I think, like you, you say, like, just from an athletic martial arts you know, practitioner standpoint, you know, Rothrock was even better than someone like him, who who still was really great. Uh, she had, and I guess maybe you know, as a woman to break into the industry at all, she had to be that level of talent. But, um, but I think, yeah, martial arts too is maybe a good one for people to watch in that sense that you can sort of see her. Um, you know, Wincott's definitely not like you said, like that sort of the laid back Aussie that uh, <laughs> that um, uh, <laughs> Richard Norton is. Yeah, I get. I, I guess also that the fact that. Uh, you know, Hong Kong action is so kind of um, intense and different to what anyone else kind of knew. They they both started in Hong Kong, so they started in the you know the toughest kind of action you know format that you could do. So coming over to Hollywood together, they've kind of done their their dues over in Hong Kong, and then to an extent, it's a little bit easier, I guess, when you come over to the West. But I think what they both found challenging often was you know having to hold back or having to kind of miss your kicks and hold back a little bit so that was one thing they both had to adapt to but i think there was that kind of uh kinship between them that, that they both kind of come from hong kong and earn their stripes to an extent yeah yeah for sure and i think that was something that um that, um you know cynthia rothrock has her own youtube channel where she sometimes will do some behind the scenes on you know some of the movies in the past that people knew and i think um <clears throat> tiger claws i think was one of the ones where you know I was sort of looking at her um her, her bio and Tiger Claws I think is one of the first ones that she did that was an American production because um you know she did uh you know I guess I guess Fast Getaway but I think maybe Tiger Claws was shot before it and then the other ones like you know the China O'Brien is a Shaw Brothers production um you know some of the other ones and so um I think she was surprised at like the, the way the production was run. And of course it was, you know, Jalal Merhai's uh, production, you know, so it, it wasn't yeah. like always, you know, I think um, one of the stories she told was in Tiger Claws too. He hadn't paid Bolo Young yet. And, um, <laughs> and I guess like he was angry and I guess uh, Rothrock's mom was on the set. And um, I guess he, you know, Young just walked out. Like, he's like, I'm not shooting unless you pay me. And so um, I guess Rothrock's mom went up to Rothrock and said, oh, man, you know, Bozo just walked out and walked off the set. And she was like, it seems not Bozo's polo. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I think she was yeah. also, I think, you know, it was a bit of a transition for her to get used to it. But, you know, one of the other things, too, with her being a female leading lady, I, I was looking at it kind of at the time and, you know, in terms of, you know, you'd have like a lot of one-offs, like a, you know, movie like Silk that would be, you know, a one-off that was led by a woman. Um, but you never really had these sort of franchises that that Rothrock was was doing, except for, you know, the only other equivalent I could think of was when Andy Sidaris with his Lethal Ladies movies, when he turns the franchise over to Donna Spear, I think at maybe Savage Beach, when he decides that, okay, the Abilene family member who can't shoot straight will diminish that character 
and have her take over as the lead, which is a weird thing to think about, right? That you're talking about, a, you know, a movie series that's as much about like, you know, women being topless and, you know, topless hot tub scenes and, and all of that, but that, you know, it act, it, it, you know, there's still an action franchise that that's really kind of the only other one that you can think of, or that I could think of at least that, that was led by a woman at yeah. that time. So you know, Rothrock really was by herself that there, you know, there were other stars like, you know, you mentioned Michelle Yeoh, who a lot of her stuff was still being done in, 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 in China. You know, I think, you know, um, uh, you know, mentioned Kathy Long, um, you know, uh, Karen Shepard is one, but a lot of them were one offs. And, um, and, you know, Mimi Lesios, uh, you know, her, her films never really quite touched what Rothrock did here. So she was very unique in that sense, too, that there really weren't any other women that were doing what she was doing. Yeah, I think, you know, and even in terms of, you know, Hollywood, they would tend to do, you know, you'd get, you know, the, I guess, quote unquote, actresses who would come in, do an action film. So you maybe had Meryl Streep doing The River Wild, and that'd be her kind of like her action film. And then someone else would do it. Obviously, Sigourney Weaver had a bit more because she had a whole franchise. And then uh, Linda Hamilton as well. But, you know, they would still venture back to, you know, doing dramas and I don't know whether that was partly where some of the bigger stars in female stars in Hollywood just didn't want to get shoehorned yeah. if they had a bit of success in an action film or whether it was just studios thinking, well, we want to try, we'll, you know, we'll do a one off here and see if it works. And then we'll do a one off over here and see if that works again. But it was, um, it was kind of a shame that, there was a wasn't a bit more faith in you know trying to push rough rock out and you know put a bit more money into her films because if you look in the early 90s there was this big push to you know get studio films with new action stars so they had jeff speakman uh thomas ian griffith and then you know they're putting reasonable amounts of money in and i think maybe you know one of those studios could have taken more of a gamble on cynthia yeah, no, I, t- I was thinking the same thing because, it, you know, there was still that sense in, in I think, in the late 80s, early 90s when she starts you know, doing films here in the U.S. that other than, you know, Van Damme, obviously, he was a more martial arts, arts based hero, but he also was like very ripped and had the muscles as well. Um, and then Seagal was definitely he, he did not have the traditional physique but was more martial arts based, but we still were getting, you know, how many, you know, Schwarzenegger movies, uh, Stallone movies, you know, these big guys that just, you know, big muscle bound guys that were, were doing the action films. And I wonder if there was a sense of like, you know, I think like you said, they were trying it out with Speakman. They were trying it out with Thomas Ian Griffith. If maybe they thought it just wasn't working and they weren't going to gamble with Rothrock. I mean, another one that they didn't gamble with was Don the Dragon Wilson, who, uh, you know, it, it would have been interesting to see him get some big screen films. And, yeah. you know, I think both of them, I, I think, but I think you're right. I think with, with Rothrock seeing her in China, O'Brien, you know, it, despite the fact that you know, it's a lower budget production, so it's hard to imagine it on a big screen, you know, big, you know, uh, a, a bigger budget Hollywood production. But I think from a movie star standpoint, I think she could have carried it off. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know with, you know, guys like Don Wilson, Jeff Speakman following up Perfect Weapon, a lot of these guys were kind of unfortunate because they had kind of opportunities, you know, that were put their way or, you know, for some reason or other, they just didn't come off. So, I mean, there was that rumour about a film called, I think it's called The Executioner, that was going to be Sylvester Stallone, 
William Friedkin directing. And at one point, Cynthia was attached to that. So, you know, she kind of waited around for that. And she got paid quite a lot of money. I think she said something when she was interviewed by Scott Adkins that it was actually the most money she'd made uh, for a film that never got made. Um, and, you know, she was waiting around for that to kind of go into production. It was very, very close. And while she's waiting around, she has a chance to do China Row Brian Free, but she turns it down yeah. um, because she's waiting around for, the, you know, the big film, so to speak. So it's just those fine margins where, you know, it's close, but it doesn't quite come off. Yeah, and, uh, you know, um, probably around that same time, she gets a, a TV pilot with Stacey Keach for Irresistible Force, which yeah. would have been a network TV show here in the United States, you know, probably akin to something like, you know, um, you know, the Samuel Hung TV show here, uh, Martial Law or, you know, Walker, Texas Ranger or something like that, which would have been another one that would have probably pushed her to the mainstream. And for whatever reason, CBS decided not to pick it up. So they just released the uh, the pilot as a standalone movie, which was just a, you know, diehard in a, uh, in a in a mall kind of film. But I mean, she was electric in it. She was just fantastic and, and yeah. great to watch. I mean, that, that was a really enjoyable film. I liked that one. Yeah, I mean, imagining yeah. a weekly series with that, and I think that would have also been something that would have introduced the world to her, and they would have been like, "Well, we got to do something. We got to," and, and maybe it wouldn't have led to the big screen success that she would have liked, but I think it would have been something a little bit more stable. Like you said, you know, she got paid the most for a movie that never got made with Sylvester Stallone, so you know, network TV would have probably also paid her more than any of her films did. Yeah, and you kind of get that, you know, that mainstream. You're on you're on TV every week, so it, it works quite well for Chuck Norris. Yeah. Um, you know, by which time his his film career had kind of dwindled anyway. So to be able to kind of go straight into Walker Texas Ranger was quite beneficial for him, I think, because he still kind of maintained his presence on a different format. Yeah, and I think for Rothrock, as someone who's trying to break through, I think it would have had the similar a similar effect. And I think you know, I think it it you know. I, you know, uh, small screen success didn't o doesn't always translate to big screen success, but I think it would have been, like you said, it would have been something more than, um, you know, because you look after Irresistible Force and it's like, okay, she's kind of going back to doing more sequels, uh, Lady Dragon. She's, you know, finally working with with, uh, um, with with PM Entertainment and places like that because I think it just, uh, maybe, maybe at that point she kind of understood that it was, you know, uh, between those two things happening that it was going to be tougher for her. Yeah, I, I think so. I think sometimes, you know, you, you get those opportunities and it's, you know, if one kind of goes to the wayside, then it's difficult to kind of get more come in. Um, and then by the, you know, by the time DVD is coming in, I think, you know, you're getting Dolph and Van Damme and Segal, they're all kind of dropping down into straight to video. And they're kind of almost pushing, you know, the likes of Gary Daniels and Cynthia down kind of a level. And they're struggling to get, kind of get leading roles in the kind of straight-to-video world. Yeah, I mean, you can look exactly at her bio on IMDb and see exactly where that happens. Where it's like 2001, two, she's still making movies. Oh, four, she ends up doing this sci-fighter movie that I think also was with, um, you know, Don the Dragon Wilson. Does another film called Lost Bullet in 07, which I have never been able to track down. I don't know. Um, it's it's 
I don't know where that movie ended up, where it came out. Um, she plays yeah. a character named Cynthia. It may even not even been released. I don't know. I think I remember seeing that, a Spanish version of that at some point. It Was that the one with um, Carradine in as well? Yes. Yeah, David, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Bala Perdida, I guess, is the, yeah. the, the Spanish. Yeah. Um, so I mean, maybe that's where it was. Maybe it got released um, abroad, in, in, or maybe it got released in a, a, a Spanish-speaking uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it looks like it was maybe released in Spain. I don't know. Um, said it had a release date of February third, two thousand and seven, in the U.S. So, um, so supposedly it was released. It looks like yeah, it wasn't released in Spain until twenty fourteen. So, who knows? Yeah, what happened? But but you know, like you said, it's it's kind of indicative of that that time period where, yeah, you've got you know Dolph dropping down, but then also Seagal and and and. Van Damme dropping down to direct to video. They were pushing her out, pushing Don the Dragon out, yeah. Gary Daniels. I think the, the unique thing is that Gary Daniels kept working through that period. He was just sort of taking more like lower tier films, whereas uh, it looks like Wilson and and uh, Rothrock kind of took a break from it all. Um, I think you know Cynthia Rothrock has a a span. Of, you know, after that Lost Bullet film doesn't work out, she doesn't come back until. 2012, where she does the David Dakota film Santa's Summer House, where she plays Mrs. Claus, <laughs> and you know now yeah. she's doing more films. But you know, and I think I want to say uh, that Wilson had a similar one where he did um, the Jesse V. Johnson movie The Sentinel, and I think yeah. that was what it was called. Yeah, and then he disappeared for a while, and then he comes back with a very small role in the fourth Scorpion King movie. And now he's doing movies again, too. So I wonder yeah. if for both of them, they were just looking at the scripts that were coming across their desk and just thought, like, what, what, what is the purpose of this? Yeah, I, I think it's in part of that. I think also maybe there's just a little bit more of a nostalgia boom again. So, but, you know, they might be getting more offers. It's difficult because, you know, whereas maybe they make quite a, a reasonable amount of money 15, you know, 20 years ago, um or even going you know 30 years ago you know films that are costing you know maybe a hundred thousand dollars you're not going to be getting paid uh you know a massive amount and you know these you know tend to be films where they can only afford to get someone in like don wilson or cynthia maybe for two or three days yeah yeah and i think you know one of the things we've, i've noticed with some of these is that like i mean there's a movie showdown in manila where it's just like at the end of the yeah. film you know suddenly like oh here's rothrock uh wilson and uh and olivier gruner um yeah and just like oh here we go we'll just shove them in at the end of the movie and, and there you go <laughs> and it was funny because i think the character it was that that um i can't remember the guy's name the uh uh, uh russian um nevsky alexander nevsky ne yeah nevsky yeah yeah, it was kind of funny because he's the the main hero guy, and suddenly you bring in these big names, and Casper Van Dien's already there. And it was just kind of like watching the movie, going, "Why weren't they the leads of this movie?" You know, like they're all like, you know, like you know, like yes, yeah. like, it was supposed to be a, a Nevsky vehicle, but it was like, you know, almost like by him bringing all these names in, it was kind of like us thinking, like, or at least for me, I was like, "Huh, they they should have been the, the leads here instead of this, this Nevsky guy, who's kind of just a, this wooden actor who, um, you know." I mean, he was trying. He was doing his best. Well, he's kind of, kind of self-funding, isn't he? So he's right. he's promoting and pushing himself, which you know I can't, I kind of admire because you know if uh, you want to do something, you might as well do it yourself. Yeah. And he's obviously got the money to do it. So uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's got a couple. He's got one that he did with um, uh, he did with with Rothrock and and um and Art Camacho. It's like a 
there, there's some westerns, or it's a series of westerns, I guess, that they're doing. Um, that could be really interesting to see how, how those come off. Um, that you know, what is it like? Real something taken from Rio Bravo gunfight at Rio Bravo or the two, um, and so. Yeah, I mean, it could be interesting to see if maybe some of this, you know, someone like a Nevsky is someone who can give them projects to do that they might actually, you know, have maybe more of a say in or more of a role in that might actually make them feel better about the fact that maybe they aren't getting a lot of money from these roles, but at least they're they're back in and doing movies that uh, they actually, you know, enjoy doing. Yeah, I think, it, you know, it'd be nice that if they can kind of get roles in, you know, films which are made in the right spirit as well. I think sometimes it's difficult if you're waiting around and then someone wants you to come in for a few days on something, I guess, you know, like Santa's Summer House or whatever it was. I mean, I guess it could be fun. And, you know, you're there was, a, you know, two or three other stars in there as well. So it's almost like, okay, we'll turn up, have a bit of a good time with Gary Daniels and everyone else. Um yeah, so it's it's interesting. I mean, I'm hoping to do one or two things at some point with uh, Cynthia. Yeah, I think that would be awesome. Now, now, from so from your standpoint as a screenwriter, it would it be something where you're she's already in on the project or something, and it's a matter of like you, it's something that maybe she's attached to later, or something where she's already been signed onto the project, and it's a matter of writing that the the role for her there. I mean. With certain stars, it's it's sometimes that they get attached and then I'll, I'll write for them. Um, but from my perspective, it's um, I've tried to kind of, you know, subtly kind of use Inception, like the Nolan film, to kind of uh, get her name, you know, tentatively attached to certain scripts. But it's, sometimes it's difficult. I mean, I had one screenplay where there was a character that would have been perfect for Cynthia, but then during the rewriting process, that character gets cut out. So that means, you know, there's not really a suitable role then. Um, but, you know, I'm working on something at the moment and then hopefully, you know, we can get a kind of go ahead on that and then hopefully I can offer a role her way on that one. So, you know, you know we'll see what happens. It's difficult really. And uh, sometimes it's about, you know, the value of the name so, you know, my idea of value might be different to, you know, some distributors. So we'll, we'll have to see, really. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. And maybe with the, like you said, with the nostalgia piece there, if if people would say like, OK, Rothrock is, is enough of a name because people are, are coming back to these movies and wanting to watch them. Or like you said, if maybe the distributor yeah. would look at it and be like, nobody knows who she is or nobody, you know, which is a horrible thing to think that people wouldn't know who she is. But maybe, you know, uh, the distributor might might say something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's different, you know, different distributors have different ideas of who's who's hot and who's not at the moment. Um, sometimes, you know, it can be just because someone's done three or four films in a year and they're kind of oversaturating themselves, like, you know, Eric Roberts, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, there's been a bit of a nostalgia boom. She's got a couple of things coming out on... Um, blu-ray so you know they're getting nice re-releases like writing wrongs um and then you know you had cobra kai the last season that had just shown you know they made mention of her in that so there was a bit of a reference to her in that and then a few kind of people you know thought maybe it'd be cooler if she got a part in 
you know, that show at some stage. So you never know if, you know, the filmmakers are aware of her and obviously, you know, have a soft spot for Rough Rock. They might at some point put her in the show, which could boost her up again. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. And she still seems to be really kind of popular on the, you know, the things like comic cons and martial art circuits. Uh, so she's always traveling the world, it seems, you know, going to all these different events and making appearances. So she's kind of got that, there's that awareness associated with her. So hopefully there'll, you know, there'll be a bit more of a, a push to kind of get her into something and then really, you know, really interesting. Yeah, I think that could be awesome because I, I think, you know, I'd be really be interested to see like, yeah, like, you know, you as a, as a really, you know, big action fan. Um, yeah, kind of seeing that collaboration, seeing um, the part that you'd write for her and her, yeah, getting a chance to really, really do that piece in there. Because I, I do think that's one of the things with her recent stuff that's a little bit, you know, sort of, it, it, there, there isn't as much in her recent stuff that really harkens back to this, this stuff that we're going to be talking about here when she really was such a, you know, a huge force in, in the, the action world. And it would be nice to kind of see some of those come back. I know she has a bunch of stuff, it looks like, in production and, you know, filming, um, you know, in development. So, you know, hopefully some of those also will, will, will kind of, you know, because I'm seeing like things like martial arts kid, doggone yeah. Hollywood, you know, she plays the mom in a car. Those kinds of things obviously aren't going to really move the needle as much as like if she, you know, we get a scene of her, like, you know, getting to fight somebody or, you know, showing showing some of what she, you know, what, what, what we remembered her for. Exactly. I think, you know, there's maybe two or three things that she's got coming up and I, know, I think one or two of them are kind of from a little bit like the Nevsky kind of thing where someone is kind of self-producing something and it's I guess maybe she's you know it's someone else's ego project but they they're very aware of these old stars and kind of want them in the film so that you know that could go could be a good thing or it could be that they kind of get a bit underused but we'll we'll see yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm kind of excited to see, you know, or, you know, to, to see if, if that happens there. Uh, now, now thinking about China O'Brien, I think I, I don't know for you if this was one that was like that you you kind of remember from a you know seeing in the video store or on TV or anything like that. Or uh, you know, it, I, for me, this was my introduction to to Cynthia Rothrock. Yeah, this this was mine too. So I recall kind of seeing her being interviewed on like I think it was a kids TV show in the UK kind of like a classic Saturday morning um, entertainment show. So I think she was on it being interviewed or demonstrating, and then they showed um, a couple of clips from the film. And, you know, then I kind of vividly remember sort of seeing it in the video shop as well. Um, I think there was a big poster at one point, you know, that had been put up for China O'Brien. So this was the, yeah, this was the first one for me. Yeah, I was trying to remember myself if it was a video store poster or if it was a, a trailer in another movie. But I just remember, I, I, I feel like there was a trailer where it was like, you know, because I can think of like the trailer guy's voice, like, you know, Cynthia Rothrock in China O'Brien, you know, or, um, you know, something like that. But this was definitely the one that like, OK, this is, you know, this going to the video store and seeing this. Um, I don't remember renting a lot of her movies as much as seeing them on cable sort of after this one. I think a lot of the movies that I caught of hers, like, you know, Lady Dragon, which we're going to be talking about in a little bit, Rage and Honor, those ones were definitely like, you know, if, you know, 
either you know having uh, paid cable channels um, or yeah just you know seeing them in those, those kind of environments uh, TNT channel here in the US used to show a lot of action movies like that that, uh, that were a lot of fun but or you know there were a lot of like, you know kind of of this quality but you know when you're watching it now it's it's like you can see that like she is a next level talent I think and this being her introduction, I guess, or her first kind of, um, you know, uh, Western production. I mean, it was product, produced by the Shaw Brothers, but it's kind of the first one that takes place in the United States. Uh, you know, yeah. th- I think there was a, probably a sense maybe on her end and maybe, you know, everybody's in that this is just the start of something big. Yeah, definitely. I think so. It's kind of that middle ground, isn't it? So the, the fight scenes still carry over some of that kind of speed and energy from Hong Kong. Um even if they're probably shot a little bit more like um, traditional Western, you know, fight scenes. So, it, yeah, it's kind of that middle ground. But, you know, comparatively to what a lot of the other kind of stars of the time were doing, you know, that she was doing some really good fight scenes in this film and a few of the ones around that time. Are probably even more complicated sort of choreography than even someone like Van Damme, because I know he had, you know, he would do the show-stopping kind of helicopter kicks, but he would have a very kind of, um, he'd have his kind of routines that he would do, you know, leading up to those. Yeah, yeah, this was definitely with with Rothrock, it was like, you're just sort of out of the gate, you get these scenes with her, I mean, especially like the, the, the scene where the dad you know, because so maybe just give people a quick synopsis of the movie. Um, Rothrock plays a, a big city police officer who uh, she she kills someone in the line of duty, and I can't remember it, it is it, that she resigns or that they actually have her turn in her 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 gun and her badge. Um, yeah, so she resigns. That's what I yeah. thought. Yeah, because the synopsis on IMDb is saying she's forced to hand in, and I didn't I didn't think it was that way. I thought maybe, but you know, I mean, never know if I if I missed something about that. But um, <laughs> but um, but then we have like a walking tall scenario when she goes back to her hometown where her dad is the sheriff, and um, there's some baddies that have taken over. Um, it also has a bit of a roadhouse feel, except without the club involved. But um, you know, the baddie kind of has the almost Ben Gazzara, um you know, roadhouse baddie kind of feel. But essentially when her dad's dead, um, they want to put this uh, uh, toady that they that the baddies have planted in the sheriff's department. They want him to be the new sheriff, but there's an emergency election. And so she runs against this guy and the town kind of rallies behind her. Um, in addition, of course, we have Richard Norton who plays uh, Matt, a guy from the hometown that she kind of reconnects with who also happens to be a martial arts expert. And then Keith Cook, uh, which is, this is technically his second role. He was in uh, uh, Picasso, Picasso Trigger with um, the Andy Sidaris movie. That was like his, his first role, but he really doesn't do any martial arts in that one. Um, but here he, he plays uh, a, a Native American who is, uh, his hand is is um, maimed by these baddies, and so he is out for revenge as well. And so together, them with some of the other people in the town, they sort of fight back these baddies here. And I was, you know, I think that the scene that I was alluding to is where you know Rothrock's dad is still alive, and they go to confront the baddies because um, uh, somebody's complaining that they're stealing. Um, that this guy's complaining that they're stealing his timber, and you know when they get there, the the baddies start to sort of try to strong arm the sheriff, and that's when when Rothrock gets sort of unleashed into action. And that, that first scene there, you get to see some really great stuff. And I think it just sort of sets the stage for what the rest of the movie is going to be. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the fight scenes are really good in this. And obviously, I think, uh, you know, some people might not be aware that it's directed by Robert Klaus, who did Enter the Dragon. So there's a bit of caliber behind the camera as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think one of the things, I don't know if you caught it, it seemed like there were a couple times where you could see the baddie sort of waiting to get hit, um, a couple times where that part wasn't maybe as, as as cleaned up as you might see in a Hong Kong production. Yeah. But it definitely, like you said, the speed is there, and, you know, I mean, you know, Keith Cook is, is new to this, whereas Rothrock and Norton have been doing this for a long time, and, and I think for sure those two come in and they just really just deliver on those scenes, and I think Cook, I think, you know, he, he, he definitely holds his own with them, despite the fact that this is his first film. I think he's, you know, I mean, he'd been a practitioner for a while before that. So uh, it wasn't like this was all new to him. But, yeah, I think, like you said, like, like you know, I think Klaus was like the right person to direct her, her first film here in the U.S. And, and it, it definitely shows. I think it, it definitely it, it's a really solid film in that respect. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, considering that it's sort of her first significant acting role really because i mean in the hong kong films you know she would be you know she'd be dubbed over but you know her remit was never really to be doing much in terms of acting you know any kind of emotional reactions had to be kind of big and kind of overdone because that's the kind of style and it's usually in kind of slightly comical films so it's the first one where she's kind of really got to hone into you know being an actress as well which, you know, and in that regard, I think she does a good job in this one. Yeah, and I think you could even make a point, too, that Klaus, I think, does a good job of, like, not letting her get in too bad of a situation. Like, like, you know, for example, she has to cry over her father dying. Um, yeah. You know, he could have let that go on really long, and maybe that would have been a point where maybe you watch and you're like, okay, this is, you know, this is beyond what her <laughs> scope is as an actress. But yeah. in, instead of letting it go on too long, so just to kind of give people a sense of what happens here, um, and if you haven't seen the movie, definitely try to try to track it down if you can. But um, the dad goes out to handle uh, uh, an incident, or he's called about an incident, so he goes into his car to, to, to go out to see what's going on, and when he, you know, starts the ignition, the car blows up. And... Um, Rothrock realizes that his partner probably is going to meet the same fate. And um, I guess it's their maid that they have. I guess they have, they have a maid living with them. Um, she calls the partner to come out. And of course, you know, Rothrock, while she's in her tears and crying over her dad, having just been blown up um, before she can cry too long, she realizes like, Oh no, what are you doing? Calling the partner. He's going to get blown up too. And she tries to, tries to save him and, and she's not able to. Um, so it's, it's sort of like, you know, we, we don't get her crying too much because, you know, suddenly she's got to jump back into action like that, which I, I thought was a good move because I, I think that's something you see yeah. a lot with, with, you know, Wilson. They, they used to do it to Wilson a lot where they would just put him in situations where it just seemed like he wasn't it, he wasn't at that level yet where he should have been trying to act out those scenes. And, and it didn't always look good. And I think, you know, Lorenzo Lamas is another one. They used to do that to him all the time where you just watch it and be like, he's not really crying and he's not really doing a good job. <laughs> of it, you know, I mean, at least she was doing a good job crying, but they didn't let it linger too long. Yeah, I, I guess that's a kind of action trait as well, um, particularly around that time that they they didn't want to rest too much on the emotional scenes. They want to kind of kick into the action quite quickly. Yeah, and I mean, this is a movie that I think, to, to some extent, I think, you know, as I was watching it, I thought they they could have almost like, you know, said it a little bit differently where maybe Rothrock is in there doing her big city thing and her dad gets killed in like the first 15 minutes and she's got to come back and sort of take over. Um, you know, we had a, a, a phenomenon that I call baddie in a can where, you know, all of these bad guys are 
established bad guys just the moment you see them. You don't need to do any like background on what they're doing, what they're <laughs> up to, or anything like that. I yeah. mean, you know, that first scene that she's in the bar and she's beating them up there. I mean, they were obviously not, you know, they're, they're people that we, you know, anybody watching the film wants to see her beat up. And so, uh, but but the way they decided to do it where it's like almost like the first 45 minutes or so are her back home and her dad, like, you know, kind of, I guess, showing that, okay, the judge is in the can for the baddies, the there's this the sheriff or this person that's the deputy who's who's in the can that that you know all these sort of things are happening and and the dad's really working uphill about all of this and and we know eventually that he's going to get killed off it's sort of a inevitability in the film um, or at least be incapacitated so that she can take over and, and so in a way there was that piece where it, I don't want to say the movie was spinning its wheels but it was a, it was a, a unique approach to it to not just have him just die off at the beginning because a lot of movies I think would have done it that way. Yeah, I think, you know, that's at least something a bit different. I mean, for the most part, it kind of does follow the formulas pretty much to the to the letter for that kind of film. But I think, you know, it's one of those where, you know, for a first film, you kind of want to, you know, have something that, you know, ticks the boxes, really. And that kind of walking tall, you know, roadhousey kind of film was a good platform, I think. Um, because I think also what, has always been quite good about Cynthia in her career is that, you know, she's always come across as likable on screen and had a, you know, a good presence. So I think they, you know, they do make the most of that. So you, you kind of feel, you know, sympathetic for, for her, you know, certainly at the beginning of the film. And then, um, you know, you kind of root for her as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing they mitigated well, which again, it might be, just to the fact that that Richard Norton, you know, wasn't going to try to hog the the star role in this, or wasn't going to try to outshine Rothrock. I thought they did a great job in, in having it, having that the hierarchy fit well, where you know Rothrock is the star, and then you've got you know Richard Norton giving us some really great scenes, Keith Cook giving us some really great scenes, but you know, but it never diminished what she was doing on the screen. It, there was never a feeling of like, well, she couldn't take care of herself, or that she needed these guys to to save the day for her. it was more like you know we're working together as a team to take down this this sort of this mass syndicate that's taken over the town yeah yeah definitely for sure i mean you know it's good to see her you know she's playing you know someone who's you know physically able but also you know is intelligent as well so it's it's quite you know different to what you know most of the straight to video female characters of the time would be um you know they'd be consigned to being like a love interest or you know someone a bit helpless but you know this was something completely different really yeah and maybe this this is a good a good segue for lady dragons i think there's some of the aspects of that that i think that they almost you know where, where they, they they sort of had trouble with um you know, mitigating, you know, the fact that she was a female lead. But I, there was one thing I did like about China O'Brien is that they they seemed to know well enough that like, OK, you know, as a female lead, like they, they wanted her to be be pretty and feminine on those aspects. But at the same time, be able to hold her own and take down guys that are, that are much bigger than her in a way that was very believable. I think her, her martial arts skills are such that you, you believe her being able to like hit these guys and make them. Uh, you know, there, there, there's definitely a lot of power in the way she punched that you, you would believe yeah. her being able to, to take these guys down. And I think for a first movie for her, this was 
exactly the kind of thing that needed to happen where it doesn't have the, like you said, like she's not like the love interest. She's not the damsel in distress. She's not any of those aspects. She is the woman who's coming in to, to clean up this town, um, clean up her own town. Um, she's got people helping her out. Yes. I mean, you know, most of these movies, the, the hero does have somebody helping them out. So there's people helping her out, but they're not in any way like taking over for her or, or showing that she's not capable herself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, from a performance kind of point of view as well. Yeah. As you say, you know, her punches look powerful. I think in, when I was listening to her interview with Scott Adkins, you know, he would mention the fact that one thing that he noticed when he used to watch her, you know, growing up on video is that, you know, her kicks look really powerful. So, you know, she looks, you know, she looks the part and then from a performance point of view in the fight scenes, you know, she more than kind of matches those male contemporaries. Yeah. And, and I think, I wonder if because I mean, like this movie, I seem I think seems to navigate it all really well. But I think because the action film it has just so many embedded uh, uh, you know cliche stereotypes that it, it needs that there was maybe a fear of like well how do we mitigate these with with Rothrock you know like um you know are we gonna have a guy be the damsel in distress or are we you know like they didn't know what to do with any of those things here they didn't need to do any of it they 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 were able to have a successful action film without feeding into you know they were able to feed into certain cliches that were sort of not gender specific but it wasn't like they felt like they it wasn't like they they felt like they needed to flip certain ones and 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 use them in the movie you know we didn't need any damsels in distress or anything. i mean i guess we technically kind of do right because he has the, the baddie has a, a woman that he's i guess you know he's supposed to be his girlfriend that he's like has her like tied up in a in a bedroom for most of the film um, but she's not really like somebody that needs to be rescued in that sense it's more like we don't even know that you know the, the, the heroes don't even know that she's there um it's just sort of like a another way to sort of enhance the baddie as being a bad guy more than it is like a a damsel in distress element yeah yeah for sure i think it, you know they they did a really good job of um you know really kind of selling her as a believable you know heroine in the film so i think it's one that works really well as you know particularly as a first kind of western film where you know most of the audience would not have been so aware of what she'd done in hong kong so she's coming to it kind of new really yeah yeah maybe this is a good a good segue into lady dragon um because to me i think lady dragon does sort of try to work in some of these tropes of you know um I, it, it's interesting, I think, with, and actually, maybe before we move on to Lady Dragon, was there anything else about China O'Brien that you wanted to mention? Uh, I've, I think I'll just mention quickly that, like, Keith Cook has always been one of those where I was surprised he didn't really take off as much as, you know, he deserved to. I think, you know, he kind of foreshadows a lot of the current performers and maybe even someone like Scott Adkins, who do these very kind of eye, eye-catching kicks. So, if you think about it, he's got that show-stopping triple kick in this. But these were the kind of things that people had almost never seen, particularly in, you know, the West, um, you know, before people became more aware of, like, Donnie Yen and maybe Jet Li. So he was kind of a little bit different with those kind of, you know, acrobatics that kind of even blew sort of the Van Damme helicopter kick out of the water. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and this is like really the first film he does where he's doing martial arts. Because again, you know, Picasso yeah. Trigger that comes out a couple of years before, where he also goes under his, his birth last name or birth surname of, of uh, Hirabayashi. But um, yeah, I wonder if it's a similar thing with him that it was to Rothrock, where they didn't know, you know, I think, you know, I mean, he, he's a lead in, I think, in Heat Seekers, I think, the, or Heat Seeker, the one, um, the Albert Pion film. I think it's the one film that he's the lead in. And and again, yeah. I think you're right because I think it's almost like he came too soon, right? Like like you know, Adkins comes on the screen, the scene, and and everybody's like, yeah, let's let's have him do four films a year, and he's you know, watch this kind of thing. Whereas yeah. you know, you wonder if 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 Kobe, if um if uh if he was born you know ten years later, if maybe that's you know he the the the, the roles would have been there for him. Um, because I agree, he's someone that I think we could have seen in a lot of stuff. And I mean, maybe too, like he didn't want those roles. Maybe he wanted to take a step back. Maybe he didn't, you know, he wasn't trying to push for it. But I do feel like in the ecosystem, he wasn't probably getting offered the things that maybe he should have been. No, I mean, I know he had the, you know, the Mortal Kombat films. And yeah, I think he plays two different characters in two different films. But those kind of didn't kick off as much as maybe they might have done. So, you know, by the time he's kind of done those, albeit in small parts, that, you know, he's maybe not getting the offers off the back of those. And I know that, I think he, he wears a mask in one or two of them. So obviously you've got that factor as well, where you're in this kind of slightly bigger production, but then no one can really identify you. Yeah, definitely the first Mortal Kombat, he was reptile in that one so uh yeah was, yeah yeah so whereas that in, in in the second one annihilation he was sub-zero he had his mask off for, for some of that one um and i think the other problem too again is that you know kind of maybe going back to your article that you wrote about comic book movies in the 90s you know a lot of these these, these attempts at making franchises were kind of fits and starts and i think mortal kombat's an example of that where the second movie you know the first movie did well enough that they could put a second movie but the second movie just wasn't quite what what people were looking for at that time and that was it people were you know um you know they've since come back to making Mortal Kombat movies again because they're, they're trying to you know find another franchise to, to to work with but you know I think a third Mortal Kombat movie maybe he's in that one maybe he gets a bit bigger role in that one or something but yeah it just it didn't didn't work out yeah it's one of those things and I think you know it's interesting what you say about him being maybe ahead of his time I kind of I feel like maybe Cynthia Rothrock in some ways is as well. Yeah. If you look at maybe the last 10, 15 years where there's been this big kind of push to have female action heroes, um, you know, for the most part, everyone is kind of, you know, it's an actress or a model who's being, you know, made to look more kind of, um, I guess, skilled than they actually are or, you know, it's, you know, there's a lot of use of doubles and wire work and things like that. Um, I think, you know, with that kind of push at the moment, someone who's like the legit and the real deal um, with her kind of presence would have done really well, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. Because you think of Amy Johnston, for example, and, you know, yeah. Blade, Blood Fight. Um, yeah, I, I always get the name wrong on this. Is it, was it Female Fight Club, I think? The one that she did with... Um, with, yeah with, with Dolph yeah. um yeah I always I always if it's female fight club lady fight uh, yeah it's where I was, I was um but um but yeah I mean you know Amy Johnson's a very solid martial artist but you know Rothrock you're talking with uh, Rothrock it's like elite athleticism that she had and 
yeah, I think you're right. Like if she was born 10 years later and she's coming on to a scene in the 2000s, maybe it's not quite there for her. But then I think, yeah, she's someone that that they, they would have been, you know, uh, uh, centering, you know, that she would have been starring. She would have been probably getting bigger kind of franchises, things like that. Because, yeah, if you think of someone like an Amy Johnston that they're using in films, again, she's a very solid martial artist. But, you know, Rothrock is just was just another level when you, when you see her films. I mean, she's again, you know. You know, she's better than most of the men that she's acting with. She's just, you know, she in most films, she's probably the, the best athlete of, of everybody on the screen. And I think, yeah, it it's amazing to think about that, that, yeah, she probably, I mean, she probably would be getting her own TV show here in the U.S. I think, you know, and there's a, with, with the proliferation of, of channels and opportunities for TV shows, you know, I think of like the CW with the Arrowverse kind of thing. I mean, you know, someone in her level easily could have gotten a role, uh, heading one of those one of those tv series yeah yeah for sure and i think also you've got all these um streaming premieres at the moment as well there seems to be a big push um you know that you know netflix and peacock and all these kind of channels are you know pumping a lot of money into doing premieres and i think there would have been a market there for someone like you know rothrock to maybe have a run of you know, films maybe shot for maybe you know ten, fifteen million dollars, as opposed to you know what she was doing back in the day would would have been you know two, three million dollar movies. Yeah, and you know, and if she's ten years, you know, if she's born ten years later, you know, you could see like she probably would have been. I mean, maybe they would have been thinking big name like like Scarlett Johansson for um for Black Widow, but maybe not. You know, maybe they are thinking it was you know someone like her. Um, you know, she would have really been interesting in a role like that i think i think she could i mean i think she still could play a role like that if they if, if she had the opportunity but you know thinking of like some of those franchises that needed women who were martial artists the idea of being able to say okay yeah we don't need to double her as much she can actually do these parts on screen and we don't have to train her she can you know she can even choreograph the fights that that would be a whole different level that would have made those movies even even better than they were yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the opportunities might have been there, I think, to to do that. Um, I mean, there are, you know, there, there are certain stars that do it quite well um, for what, you know, for the fact that they're kind of being given that crash course training and, you know, they're being helped out by CG and wire work and things like that. So, you know, her being the kind of real deal they could have done something, you know, quite interesting in launching her as a, you know, a really kind of strong, empowered star. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I, I, yeah, it's funny. I, I, you know, like you said, I, I think about that with Keith Cook. I hadn't really considered it with her as well. That, like, yeah, the environment had changed, um, you know, over time. That that, you know, she's someone that would have been a, a real standout now. Um, you know, had, had she come along, maybe, you know, you know, she's. 10 years younger, she's born in the late 60s, and, you know, she's sort of, uh, you know, coming of age, probably in the 90s, but then, you know, in the 2000s, when those roles were starting to come, become bigger, yeah, she could have jumped right in there and, and, and taken on some of those parts. Yeah, I mean, I guess the counter to that is that she would have missed that early kind of Hong Kong action boom. So it's, you know, there's a, that might have been the trade-off. Right, and that's a good point, too, because... You know, as someone who was the kind of practitioner that she was of martial arts, 
you know, there there is that other element of it where you need to be able to have the theatrical vibe um, in, in a film. There aren't many that, that are able to do both. And I think her that was one of her things that she learned in, in Hong Kong was how to do both, how to do be a practitioner, but also be someone who can make it look really great on screen like that. Um, you know, obviously Norton is another one coming from that school. Daniels is one I think of, you know, some of the modern ones I think of, um, like Michael Jai White is really good at doing both the, the practitioner and the, you know, or, or, you know, Adkins, I think Adkins, they, he's talked about how he's not really like formally trained in like any specific martial arts. Like I don't think he has any black belts or anything like that, but he just, he kind of learns what he, you know, everything that he takes in and then just knows how to make it look fantastic on screen. And so you, you might be right that it might, it's possible that like, um, you know, I, some of the examples that I can think of, like, I, I think of, um, you know, some of the mixed martial art, uh, you know, the female mixed martial arts stars that have come over um, to to films. They're good, but they're not like Cynthia Rothrock good. Yeah, I think maybe, you know, someone like Gina Carano was probably the closest. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of having some kind of longevity and kind of some, I mean, she had a good kind of platform to begin with, with Haywire. Yeah. Um, and then did sort of reasonably well doing D DTV stuff. And then obviously, you know, getting that role in Mandalorian was, you know, a good platform. So, I mean, you know, maybe if Rothrock was coming around at that, that kind of time, she might have been doing something similar or even, you know, ending up in something like that, you know, the Mandalorian or that kind of show. Yeah, yeah. And I, when I was watching The Mandalorian recently, I was like, kind of just saying to myself like oh like gina cron why couldn't you just like kept like some of your sort of more problematic opinions <laughs> to yourself because yeah she was really great on that show and i think you know a lot of the scenes that they were able to do with her where again like they didn't need to double her that she could do the scenes um herself i i you know she added a lot to that show and and there is a sense that yeah she could have been maybe i think you're right i think she's probably one um i think even more so than maybe amy johnston um you know natalie byrne is one who came from a uh, gymnastics background who they're, they're kind of tapping to kind of move into this realm as well that I think, yeah, she, she was the real deal. And, um, yeah, maybe, you know, if, if Mel Gibson can make movies again, hopefully she'll kind of, you know, do a redemption tour or something like that and maybe <laughs> get back in because you're right. Like, yeah. I think she's one that like, yeah, I think with this sort of the newer crop here. And, and I think you're right. Rothrock maybe would have come, she probably would have in her competitive martial arts, she, she probably would have started to get into like the, um, I guess maybe she was maybe been a little bit older for the um, if she was born in the late '60s, she might have been a little old for the female um, uh, uh, circuits of, of for mixed martial arts that they'd started to develop. Um, but maybe not. She might have still been able to compete in those, and and then you know would have had some kind of name recognition from uh, from UFC or, or wherever she, that she came from to then sort of catapult into a film career. Yeah, I think, you know, yes, yeah, certainly. I think she would have had the presence to kind of, you know, get some op interesting opportunities. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it could have been interesting. I, maybe maybe this is probably a good segue for us to get into uh, to, to Lady Dragon, the, the second of the films that we watched here, because this one is, for me, it's very different from China O'Brien. It's it It has some elements to it that we didn't see in China O'Brien that are sort of your, your classic film cliche uh, uh, pieces. But but overall, I, I think it's a very interesting film in her her uh, uh, her IMDb or her, her, her filmography. Um, but yeah, as we kind of get into this one, Tom, what were your kind of overall thoughts on on Lady Dragon? 
Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. Obviously, it's got shades of kickboxer, kind of mixed with more of a standard revenge film. Um, in this one, Richard Norton plays the bad guy, and he's always been really good at that. So he 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 likes to kind of he never sort of overdoes it, but he's got a really kind of good maniacal presence, I think, when he's playing these kind of roles. Um, and yeah, they kind of have a good chemistry, whether they're working together on, you know, the same team or whether they're kind of opposing each other. So, yeah, it's got interesting elements, but it's it's definitely kind of rough around the edges. I think I did quite like the locations. I'll say that, though. So during this period where, you know, you've got a lot of films like Bloodsport was filming in the Philippines, there were a lot of films filming in Thailand. Um, this one films in Indonesia. So everywhere is kind of like you know, there's a lot of these films being made in uh south asia um southeast asia and uh i think it's quite interesting in terms of what you see on screen and yeah it's got it's got its interesting moments it's also got really odd editing choices i thought so there's really weird sort of edits in the film i don't know what you thought about that yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I yeah, it, it, you're right. It it had it had some interesting uh, edits. It had some interesting like film element or some story elements that were were were, were interesting as well. It yeah, it does some 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 really unique things. I think um just to give people of the basic synopsis, and this is one that you can find on YouTube, but it's still um I think it's kind of the same thing. I think there's a there there are um DVDs available in in um kind of all around the world, but I don't know that there's any there, there's definitely not a Blu-ray yet for this one. And and it's no, not no. like a DVD that's in print, as far as I know. I I don't believe so. Um, whether it, they're in kind of uh, very small territories, but there's definitely not, um, definitely nothing in print, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. So just to give some people a sense of the the the, the story, um, so uh, Rothrock plays Kathy Gallagher, an XCI agent who's in in Indonesia, and she's sort of tracking this baddie played by Richard Norton. Um, the character's name is Ludwig Hauptmann, um, which no no German accent. He just sticks with this, this straight Aussie accent, so there's not you know <laughs> to worry about that there. But um, but um, in in going to sort of track him down, she she sort of goes undercover, and he susses out who she is. And um, not only is she beaten up, but he also rapes her, and then she gets dumped on the side of the road in the village outside of the outside of Jakarta, I believe. And um, a young boy finds her, takes her back to where his grandfather is, and she sort of is nursed back to help. I think he he, he trains her some in, in, in fighting, and she then goes back in, goes undercover. Uh, uh, essentially, there's, there's a woman working in his syndicate who uh, runs a, a brothel, and she pretends that uh, she gets hit by – the woman hits her with her car um, and then sort of insinuates herself with her, becomes friends with her as a way to get back in with Richard Norton – so that she can take his criminal empire down, um, and I think the the the, the common um, cliche or common common um, uh, film element that they use here, of course, is the action hero who is beaten up a lot and has to nurse himself back to health. I guess kind of the the Yojimbo um, uh, element there, without the the two game, you know, pitting the two games against each other, but still like the the recovering part. I think the thing where they they kind of went interesting was the fact that they decided that. Not only is she getting beaten up, but her character gets raped as well. Because I don't—it's not something that they would do if, if if it was Norton as the hero and he gets beat up or something like that. No, I mean it was. Um, 
I, I guess it adds to her kind of need for revenge, doesn't it? But right. it was quite an interesting choice to do. Obviously, they didn't really, they didn't linger on it or show it. So they did a cut, sort of cutaway. So it's yeah. almost like a slightly awkward cutaway. So you kind of have to think for a second, oh, okay, I guess that's what's just happened. But yeah, like I say, it maybe wasn't edited in the best way. Right. Well, there's that part of it, too, right, that I think they, you know, and I wonder, too, because it's interesting with Rothbard, because I think this movie and the, the sequel, Lady Dragon 2, where um, her, her husband in that film gets killed and she's sort of like tied down to a bed. And then I think she's also raped in that one. Yeah. Um, those are the only two films where she experiences anything like that. Um, Lady Dragon's also the only one where she's ever really even a damsel in distress of any kind, um, where she's ever tied up or anything like that. Um, and, you know, again, as we were talking about sort of these these cliches for how women are treated in in sort of standard action film fare um you know obviously you know comparing this to china o'brien where they don't go anywhere near any of this kind of thing uh it's interesting that it's these two lady dragon movies that that, that actually touch on either of these for her because she's never ever as far as i remember i don't think she's ever in a position that like she's in with these two films and any other film that she does no not as far as i can remember i mean the whole the whole thing between the first and the second one, I'm sure there's probably some kind of story around it. Why, you know, they're they're both shot in Indonesia, I believe, same director and same writer, and they're essentially the same film. So I'm not I'm not entirely sure the background of that, but um, it does seem a bit odd that they've kind of made Lady Dragon and then. Have you know, a few years later, they make essentially the same film with just slight redressings here and there. And then obviously Billy Drago replaces Richard Norton. Yeah. And to some extent, you could say that Sam Jones replaces Robert Ginty. Um, yeah. That, that, sort of that other character. <laughs> well, you're, you're right. Yeah. It's, 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 it, yeah, they're both David Worth. Um, so, and, and I think, you know, with him doing Kickboxer, I guess, you know, I think he, he maybe he likes that, that element of the person who's like, that the hero who's beaten down and has to recover and sort of find growth through that experience. Um, so, I, you know, I get that part of it, but yeah, it's, it's weird that like, yeah, that these are the only movies that, that she does that have any element like that in them. And it, I think, you know, with, with, with talking about a female action star, it's almost like, I mean, again, you don't usually see this happen with the male action stars as well. Like usually like they have that sort of that, that shirtless, uh, torture scene that seems to come from Rambo where they, they all have that thing, that thing. <laughs> and maybe that was part of it was they, yeah. they felt like they couldn't do that with her so they had to do this instead uh, you know I, I don't know and and I wonder from her standpoint too is if, if after she does these two movies if she's like you know I don't think for my career it's good for me to be doing this kind of role either that it does kind of border too much on what women are expected to be in action films and I'm supposed to be I want I need to be the hero kind of like the Fred Williamson rule where he always, always wins at the end. He always gets the girl um, and he, he can't, you know, be beaten or anything like that. I, I wonder if she starts to realize like, maybe I need to kind of protect my career the same way. Yeah, I, I would, I would guess so. And I think also maybe that's part of the reason why she never kind of resorted to doing a load of like topless scenes, which maybe, I would imagine a few of the producers probably requested it at some juncture. They probably said, oh, do you think we could have this scene in here? I think there's one film she does, Sworn to Justice, which is, you know, where she, you know, she kind of has this sexual side to her. 
Whereas generally she's kind of like, uh, you, you don't really have that in her films. Yeah, and I do think to some extent Lady Dragon tried to bring that part out as well, which I get, you know, it's, I think that's, that's again where, where the difficulty comes in. It's like, okay, well, how do you have Rothrock as a woman and Rothrock as the action lead where the action lead is just like so tied into this concept of like alpha male masculinity? And, yeah. and so it did feel like that was one area where Lady Dragon was also trying to, you know, she was wearing sexier outfits, uh, you know, she was sort of playing up that that part of her that is sort of like the the beauty and the femininity and so so in that sense they were trying to do it there and i think you know when you see her youtube page i mean a lot of the pictures of her are in more provocative clothing and, and, and things like that so i think almost like she maybe she feel like she's, she's sort of making up for that lost time because those roles you're right like it seemed like it, it, other than that one film um you know in, in uh sworn to justice where she had that kind of like that almost like that love scene with the, the main character and um i think yeah. actually I think when i was posting my, my images on photo bucket i think they took the image down that i had of her which was, <laughs> wasn't really even that like that undressed but um i guess no not it, really no yeah but you're right that like it, i think that was one area that these films maybe that was part of what, what what drew her to these films is that she could she could be more of that that feminine side to herself as well yeah, I mean, I guess when it's the male kind of action star and they're having those scenes, it's a bit more gratuitous because, you know, the person opposite them, the, the female actress, who's usually just a bit part, or they're just there for that scene yeah. in particular. They, you know, they've got the top off and it's a bit gratuitous. Um, so I guess producers didn't really know how to make that work on the other kind of side of it. Um I mean, they probably did want to kind of exploit that side of her as well. But, uh, you know, you know, she never really did it apart from maybe Sworn to Justice, where even then it's not that kind of, um, you know, it's nothing too revealing. I mean, she's got a, like a, a Carter display, a sort of martial arts Tai Chi display, I think it is, where she's in a kind of night night dress. And that's about the most gratuitous thing she's ever done yeah yeah and even then it's sort of it's you know it's it's fairly tastefully done really so i think you know obviously she's quite careful about what she was doing back then yeah and i think because of that sort of this loaded image i mean i think too like in the in the late 80s early 90s when hair metal was you know the big you know sort of the dominant um music form especially here in the united states you know like they you'd have like like lita ford um was a you know famous guitarist or you know the group vixen was a you know all girl all women uh, uh metal group but like like lita ford it was like you know all the pictures on magazine covers were of her and like these really sexy outfits when you know as a as a guitarist she was one of the best at the time and you know she did song with uh um uh, um drawing a blank here right i don't know why i'm thinking of uh uh of uh, Osborne, I can't. Why am I? I can't believe I'm drawing a blank of the lead singer of Black Black Sabbath. Uh, uh, sort yeah, Ozzy Osbourne. Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah, yeah. I'm having a. I guess I'm having a, a senior moment in my my early 40s. <laughs> I don't know why I did that, but but no. But like she was, you know, she was a really great guitarist. But then there was this whole thing of like, oh well, no, she, you know, if we're gonna put her on the cover of a magazine, she's got to look as sexy as possible. And I wonder, for Rothrock's standpoint, because you think of her, right? You think of like the magazine cover she was doing. A lot of them were her you know, just doing martial arts and it wasn't like sexy outfits or things like that. And I, yeah, you wonder if maybe that was part of it, that she was careful to make sure like, okay, I, um, you know, I, I want to be seen 
a certain way because I, I don't have any choice if, if, if I want to be taken seriously. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, it's difficult to know whether it is, you know, more her decision or, I mean, she did a few quite racy photo shoots, nothing like hugely revealing, but around about that era in the mid kind of 90s. So she definitely, you know, wasn't kind of shy in doing kind of photo shoots and modelling shots. But yeah, in terms of the films, it's, you know, I mean, imagining she probably got offered a few more, almost like not Shannon Tweed level, but, you know, things approaching that. So maybe she got offered a few films like that and turned them down, which kind of blended maybe the two together, you know, martial arts and then maybe more of an erotic kind of side as well. No, that's a really great point, because that that period in the early 90s was also big for the erotic thriller. So. Yeah, you could. I, I could see that, like that she may have gotten some of those, like yeah, like like you said, like almost like a Shannon Tweed type yeah. movie. Um, I yeah, mean, I, she did one movie, I think, called Fatal Passion, yeah. which uh, it's got a few kind of scenes like that. I think I don't think she's the main lead in it, but um, again, you know, it's not kind of gratuitous and it doesn't sort of linger on a big, you know, long topless shot. So she sort of remains covered up. But I mean, she did. Uh, kind of dip her toes I guess in that genre yeah that's a good point and that that comes out a couple years after this um or a few years after yeah and it's one I've I've never actually seen before I know um I I think uh I I thought I had seen it but it it doesn't look like it because I would have reviewed it if I'd seen it and uh yeah it's not showing the uh (laughs) that review because it's one that sounds familiar but um you know and of course she's also not anywhere near top build in it is either she's kind of um, no i think it was one of those it might might have been an early example in some territories of like a bait and switch so i know there's a there's a few kind of artworks where she's kind of on the cover um and it almost suggests that you know it's going to be a bit sexier than it probably is in the you know the final result yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, you're right. Like it's, um, yeah, yeah, because there are some that has Rothrock's name on, on the cover. And uh, yeah, it's, it, 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 you know, I think for her, maybe it was her maybe trying to kind of branch out and like, like do, you know, more acting type roles or, or show that she could do more acting. But, it, you know, I think, I think ultimately for her, you know, the, the martial arts and the action lead was really where, where she should have been. I think she was that good that she should have been leading uh, most of her films and I think yeah it's interesting to kind of see sort of how you know now that we have IMDB we can get we can kind of watch, look at her like the list of her films and it's like yeah I mean Fatal Passion is one that she does a couple years after Lady Dragon 2 she also does you know Guardian Angel the um, the PM Entertainment film after that so you know I wonder if even at that point you know she's starting to see like okay where where's my career going because yeah Irresistible Force doesn't get picked up um, you know, she, she doesn't isn't able to do the film with Stallone. So now she's like, OK, well, what, what can I do to maybe try to yeah, branch out or, or do something a little bit different? And, and so it's probably where, where Fatal Passion came in. Yeah, certainly. I think, you know, I guess there's also that aspect of being someone who's beginning to get typecast. You get a little bit bored, maybe, and want to kind of branch into a few other things. Yeah, and I do wonder if if Lady Dragon kind of falls in with that because you know, of course, you've got it, it kind of in between there. You've got the Rage and Honor films uh, that sort of 
it's almost like I think they they both happen in between the two Lady Dragons. So it's like a, two more movies that she does in in Indonesia, and then of course she does a couple with um uh, with Godfrey Ho as well, Honor and Glory and Undefeatable. So yeah, it's it's I'm wondering if she's sort of kind of getting a sense of how the career her career starting to shake out even that early on. Um, you know, Lady Dragon we're talking about only a couple years after China O'Brien that that all of this is starting to shake out like that. Yeah, I get it's difficult really because you know the you always feel like maybe you're one or two kind of bad choices away from not getting another call. So you know you want to experiment and try different things but at the same time you know sometimes you want to do what's tried and tested I mean I guess you know you she she did three Tiger Claws films two Lady Dragon films which are essentially the same thing so yeah there's probably that there was that active push to do things a little bit different like Sworn to Justice and uh yeah Fatal Passion and there was another one with Fred Williamson called Night Vision. It's a bit more of a kind of, you know, serial killer thriller. Yeah, and, and it's that that's that that character. Um what was the Dak or Dakota Smith that he plays? Yeah, Dakota he he kind of he kind of uses that character in a few different movies of his, that uh, Dakota Dak Smith character. So it is kind of interesting to see her involved in one of those movies with, with him. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that was a recurring character. Yeah, let me see if I can figure out like how many movies he's done <laughs> as this D- Dakota Dax Smith character. Yeah, um, yeah, he's like this this uh, police detective that he uses in movies, and so um, yeah, I mean, he kind of brought him on earlier on. Um, he, there's like one movie that he even has a song. Um, I can't remember how the song went. But, uh, <laughs> there's one of them. Um, it was so, so on the edge. He did a movie called Rage Within, also with Dakota Smith. So on the edge, you might know. I think that was one that had um, Ice T in it. Um, Down and Dirty. That's the one that has the song for Dakota. <laughs> that movie also had like <laughs> Gary Busey in it. Uh, you know, a few other yes. names like that. Uh, so yeah, this character. Yeah. So Night Vision is there. Was Night Vision the first time he used that character? Maybe that's the first time he used them. Um, yeah, actually. Yeah. So that's. That's kind of an interesting one there. That's the first time he uses this. Dakota. I quite enjoyed that one actually. I thought that was quite an interesting uh, change of pace for Roth Rock. And um, yeah, I enjoyed the film. That's one interestingly that's got, at least in Amazon UK, it's got quite a good HD transfer because I think it got a Blu-ray release somewhere in Europe. Um, so they, you know, occasionally Amazon, if there's been a Blu-ray release somewhere, they'll get a transfer of it and put it on you know, to their, their streaming platform. Yeah. Cause I, I think here in the U S it's available on all the free streamers. Um, so yeah, to be Plex and then also, um, Brown sugar is a, a Amazon prime channel that I think you can, you pay extra for, um, which again might be because of, of the Fred Williamson aspect in it because he's, he's the lead. Um, I think a lot of his movies yeah. are on Brown sugar. Um, yeah, it's, I, I think that the quality of the one that's on, you know, again, for, uh, here in the U S I think is also a good quality one, which, which is rare, I think for, for Rothrock's movies, which is kind of too bad that, that, um, and of course this one's a little bit later nineties, but that, uh, a lot of her movies, it seems like we've got to, you got to try to track down somehow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, as we said, it's a shame really, but I think sometimes it can be a case that maybe the film was a hit in a certain territory and that's why it's also got a good release there. Um, 
yeah, I think one of the martial laws has also got a fairly good transfer um, from when I w- watched it on Amazon. So, yeah, every now and again, you'll see one pop up. Yeah, and it, what's interesting, I think, with, with Lady Dragon is that, you know, the, the, the YouTube version that's on there is not the best quality because it, it doesn't look as good as the, the DVD that I, when I got this, um, when I watched it, when I reviewed it however long ago when I got the DVD from Netflix. Um, though, actually, on the IMDb page, the, the trailer also looks kind of like low, lower quality VHS. Um, so I wonder if maybe I'm just, yeah. I'm, my memory is a little bit off on that, but um, but it definitely feels like kind of like a lower quality VHS that you're watching on there, which is kind of too bad because I think she's, um, you know, she's really, I mean, the, the opening scene where she's, you know, in the sort of the underground fight uh, with the, the bigger guy and you kind of see her there with the hood on and it's to the back of her and you, you have a good sense that it's probably her, but when she turns around and she takes her hood off and everything, um, it's just such a really great scene there. And I think yeah. there's a lot of things here in, in Lady Dragon that are just really fantastic. I mean, the fight scenes are all really good. The fight scene she has with, with, with Norton at the end is really good. So it's, it's just one of those things where it's that there's some interesting elements that are unique to her, but I think also from a, a fighting standpoint, um, you know, it's really solid. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree as well. I really liked her intro in the film. Um, and then, you know, toward the end as well, that if the kind of final fight scene doesn't really just disappoint because I, I guess they've worked together so many times and they've done so many fight scenes together. It's almost kind of instinctive the way they kind of put something together. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, even just sort of, you know, thinking about like, I think, him, yeah, him fighting with her was really good. I think, I think that's probably why maybe too, like that the scene where her his character rapes her, you know, again it, it cuts away, so we don't really even see it, and it's just sort of inferred that it happens. But I wonder too if even that's something where it's like, you know, her working with him doing a scene like that, it's probably a little bit easier that like they kind of know where each other's sort of, you know. Uh, uh, lines are to cross or not cross and so he you know i mean later she does it with billy drago um it's not quite the same as it was with with with, uh with norton but i think probably like you said too she's probably used to him as a baddie because i think a lot of the hong kong films that she did with him he played the baddie in those ones yeah yeah i think so so you know you kind of you you have a kind of certain chemistry with certain actors and it's just a bit easier yeah, and I think also too, again, his mindset because I think you know he, I, I think he understood the talent that Rothrock had, and so he was never worried about either a losing a fight to her in a movie, but I think too like he, you know, there was never a sense that like he needed to be the star of the film that she was in. I think he wanted to showcase her talent. I think he he wanted to see her become as big as she could have, you know, as possible. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I suppose because he got his start as more or less a kind of stuntman, that never particularly left him. And obviously, you know, he had a brief kind of run um, as an action star, usually kind of, you know, like second fiddle or playing the villain. But he kind of went and progressed back again into doing stunts. So he's never been one who's got a big, who's had a big ego and wanted to kind of steal the limelight off someone. Yeah, because, I mean, he's fantastic. I mean, he's just, you know, I mean, I think of the, the yeah. Rage and Honor movies where the Rage and Honor movies are almost, they, they Rothrock's on the cover of those, but those ones seem more like like equal partnerships, um, whereas, like, you know, 
China O'Brien, she's definitely the, the 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 main protagonist there. And then of course here he's playing the baddie opposite her hero. Um, whereas like the Rage and Honor ones, it does seem like those ones are are more the two of them together um, starring as a team. Uh, and and in some cases he's more take he's taking the lead more on some of those. But yeah, I think you know I think of like the Serial H Santiago movies that he did, um, those kind of post-apocalyptic ones where he's kind of riding around <laughs> with like a leather vest with no shirt underneath and you know these big guns and you know, vehicles that have spikes attached to the front and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, so, so, so I kind of think of that as with him as a starring role, but these movies, I mean, he's just, there, there is a, a sort of larger than life presence that he has as well. It's just, yeah, I think he recognized who, who Rothrock was, that he was a real special talent. And that doesn't always happen with these movies that you get someone who's like, okay, this person's a special talent. I'm going to let them, you know, shine in a, in a film like this and, and, sort of just be happy enough to be there supporting them. Yeah, I think maybe that's partly the martial arts background as well. They've probably got a big, you know, mutual respect. Yeah. And, uh, you know, particularly if you've studied for so long and you've been, you know, you're very disciplined in what you do and the kind of even the philosophical side of martial arts, that kind of, I would I'd imagine that mean, means you're less inclined to have a, kind of big ego i mean there have been cases where that you know some stars have been known to have a big ego even when they've been you know well renowned in the martial arts world but yeah i think he seems quite grounded and down to earth and obviously uh, cynthia does as well so yeah they they kind of um they never really step on each other's toes they work together and they see the benefit on you know the benefit of their mutual chemistry yeah, for sure. I used to I used to always joke that they're kind of like the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers of the <laughs> video action because of how, how good they were together. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, one other piece I wanted to mention was just the um this there's the party scene where she is invited by the friend to the party at Norton's house, and so she's wearing this kind of this glittery dress. Um, you know, it's very very kind of se- sexy outfit that she's wearing, and she confronts. Or she, she's she's with Richard Norton and she discovers that Robert Ginty has been working with him and knows who she is. And there's a sense that like, OK, this might be it for her where she kind of get captured or something like that. And instead, like she fights her way out of it, um, grabs an Uzi off the shelf, which is always good when you, there's a, an Uzi in front of people to start firing at people. But yeah. then like, you know, she escapes on a motorcycle wearing that same dress. And I think that might have been for this movie one of the best combinations of sort of the the sexy feminine with the hard edged action lead where i mean she's leading these baddies through you know the, the classic you know any any film that's filmed in asia right they have to destroy as many food trucks as possible and just like <laughs> just destroy as much fruit i mean yeah. there's like jackfruit falling all over the place and bananas and stuff but you know she's like leading these baddies through this chase and i really like that juxtaposition there and i think you know, maybe maybe David Worth as a as a you know writer and, and director, he might have not known exactly where where to take pieces and where to not take pieces. Like maybe you know, I, for me, I think the rape part wasn't necessary um, as sort of the difference between her being a female lead or, or a male lead. But I think some of the other attempts that he made to to do that again, I think were were different from what she or a lot of the, the films that we're used to seeing with her, where you know we're, we're you know, and, and I guess it's probably not easy to do an action scene when you're wearing a dress, too. It's probably not, not the easiest <laughs> thing to do. But I liked it that, that he did kind of put those elements in there. Um, so that, that was one thing that I, I wanted to touch on for sure. Yeah, for sure. I, I guess, you know, 
she's often some of the roles she's done has kind of have a masculine edge I guess so you know there was they definitely kind of played up on the feminine side in this one and I think you know from a visual standpoint that set piece was you know did stand out because of that you know wearing the kind of glittery cocktail dress uh, while you're escaping on a mo motorbike yeah, and I mean, you know, we, we're so used to seeing that kind of thing in a film, especially in the ads. It's like, almost like uh, you know, part of the deal, I guess, maybe like the, the the location scouts when they know they're doing a movie in Indonesia, Philippines, or wherever. Like, okay, let's line up the food trucks and smash as many vehicles <laughs> through them as we can. Um, yeah, so kind yeah. of see it done differently like that, I, I really liked. Um, yeah, um, you know, be, before we kind of wrap up here, Tom, was there anything else about Lady Dragon that you wanted to mention? Um, I did... I mean, aside from those kind of the, the Southeast Asian locations, I've always found them quite interesting just to, from a visual standpoint because they, you know, they're so markedly different from, you know, the standard kind of L.A. locations or um, Canadian locations that a lot of those kind of films would have. Um, and then obviously later on, like early 2000s, it was always Eastern Europe and Roman Romania and Bulgaria. So... Yeah, I quite liked the exotic nature of those locations, um, you know, like Indonesia and the Philippines and Thailand. So that's one aspect I really did enjoy. Um, and then also the soundtrack, they're kind of, they're definitely riffing on kind of Paul Herzog, his music in Kickboxer and Bloodsport. Yeah, what, what was the, um, I'm trying to think, was this the, the movie where... Um... Oh no, it was, it was I think of China O'Brien. I'm, I'm confusing the two where China O'Brien, where she's going back home to like kind of like the kind of post Pat Benatar um, female rock uh, song that's kind of like a little bit less edgy. Um, yeah, whereas this one, yeah, I, I think I know what you're talking about here with the music here that it it, it had a bit of a, a, a kickboxer feel that I think Worth almost wanted to yeah. replicate elements of kickboxer in this. Yeah, certainly. I think they, you know, they did certainly kind of try to exploit that side. Um, because, you know, ultimately that's what um, a lot of these films did, you know, Blood Fist kind of emulating blood sport. So you, I guess you do whatever you can to really kind of draw your audience in, even if it's by association with uh, something else. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, someone like Worth too, maybe as a, as a writer and, and director, maybe he sort of, you know, sort of has his, his, his sort of maybe standard paradigm or something that he was working with, and he's just like, okay, let's see if we can we can put this together and, and, and make it a little bit different, um, you know, using Rothrock. He may have been intrigued about the idea of doing Kickboxer with, with Rothrock and having it be a, a female lead instead of the traditional male action lead. Yeah, I can imagine so, yeah. Um, yeah, I'd be interested to know whether it was something that came kind of from him initially or whether it was, a you know, more like a distributor saying, OK, well, we want to do, you know, like a, a female kickboxer with Cynthia Rothrock and whether he was kind of like a gun for hire. Yeah, that could be. Well, because, yeah, because he ended up doing the sequel as well and again yeah. almost replicated the same thing for the sequel that, like, you know, they they thought the first one did so well that it, and and I could see how the first one would have done well. I can see how if, you know, this thing was in video stores not long after China O'Brien was out that 
it, you know, this thing being on the shelves would have probably done well. Um, or or if they were just like, okay, she's in Indonesia, let's shoot two movies and just get get two films in the can. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it could have worked out that way as well. Um, it's just an interesting choice as well to essentially, you know, remake your own movie and then label it as a sequel. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's funny thinking about direct to video movies, the different, different techniques that are used for, for these kinds of things. And this is this one element of the DT, the DTV sequel is, is an interesting one of, of sort of just re doing the same thing again and just calling it part two um, and just, you know, replacing it with different actors and, and having them play similar roles. Yeah. I mean, I, I know they've done it a few times and there's a couple of blood fist films, which are essentially the same thing. Um, but I've never seen anything quite like this where, you know, one and two just have almost the same plot points. And yeah, like you say, they've just basically flipped up some of the actors. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if Richard Norton was just, you, you wonder like Richard Norton, maybe he just wasn't available for it. And maybe that's why, um, <laughs> you know, he didn't, uh, he didn't do that one. I'm trying to think from his bio if he if he had other things going on. Well, actually, it says he got married in 1993. So I wonder if maybe that's what it was. Was uh, he was he couldn't do the second one because he was getting married at that time um, with Lady Dragon yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, it could have been. Yeah. Yeah, something as simple as that. That um, because yeah, he, you know, they they you know well I guess no they couldn't have him in the movie right because they killed his character. Oh no, they didn't kill his character off, did they? They just um, he just got arrested. Yeah, unless they would have had him, you know, essentially as they're repeating the the plot line again, they might have had yeah. him play the same character. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the actress who played his his kind of right hand woman in the first one, she returns in the sequel as well. But I yeah. think she's got a different, yeah, different character name. You might be well. You're right. You're right. She's sorry, and then she's um, she's Susan. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, she does. She plays plays somebody different. So they could have had Norton playing somebody different too. That would have worked just as. I mean, I think that's part of it too. Is I think from from our standpoint as film watchers, you know, if the action's there and and all of those elements, you know, having the same person play, you know, I mean, you think of this Andy Sidaris movies. He had people come back and play, you know, different characters. You know, same actor playing. I mean, Ro Rodrigo Obregon yeah. played who? How many different people in in those movies and everybody enjoys them everybody loved them so yeah it, it, i wonder if that's what it was is maybe he you know his wedding or something like that he couldn't do the film yeah possibly i think you know we'll never know really but billy drago was also very much in demand at that time as a bad guy so it might have been that they just decided oh we want to get him in um to play the villain yeah they could have thought they were upgrading it perhaps that they were uh um they're upgrading the baddie there by having him do it instead. Um, which, yeah, Billy Drago's always been one for me that, like, I, 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 he's always been like a little bit too gross for me to enjoy him as a baddie. I think, um, <laughs> I, I think I need a little bit more of a slickness to my baddie, like, you know, like, like what, like what Norton can bring to the table. I think, yeah, yeah, I think Billy Drago's been a little bit too much for me to, to, to enjoy him as a bad guy sometimes. He just looks so, he just looked so villainous so i mean he i can't think of a time when he wasn't playing the villain it yeah. just it just wouldn't seem right him not playing a villain he just had that natural look 
Yeah, and maybe that's what it was. Maybe they just thought, okay, well, let's let's get Drago in here, and um, yeah, we won't we won't cast uh, Norton again because um, he was there. He was doing the other. Um, he was doing the other Rage and Honor film actually than '93. So actually, maybe he was just doing too much other stuff. Maybe he was doing. I mean, he had City Hunter also come out that year, so maybe that's what it was. Maybe uh, yeah, yeah. You know, he just didn't have time. I mean, somehow he managed to get married and do all those movies at the same time because um, he had a bunch of things come out in 94 <laughs> as well. So he's, you know, he, I can Im- only imagine that that wedding was probably a really quick and, you know, quick week long honeymoon. I, I do. I think I remember him talking with Rothrock about that, that um, there was something that, that, that possibly may have come. There, there's a, um, an episode on her podcast where she or her um, YouTube channel where she chats with him about their careers. They talk more about their Hong Kong days than they do. Uh, anything and they talk about like i think there's one where she injured her knee and had to do the whole movie and they had to do a fight scene together where he knew she'd injured her knee so he had to sort of you know pick up the slack on some of the parts that she couldn't do um and in that yeah. and uh, you know that kind of thing so they're telling more of those stories it's possible that maybe there there aren't as many interesting things about behind the scenes about these these uh sort of 90s direct-to-video movies that weren't made in hong kong certainly yeah i know the the whole process of hong kong films was kind of very i guess insane sometimes a bit crazy so yeah there's i can imagine there's definitely a lot of stories everyone particularly from the west who's ever kind of gone over there always seems to have a story or two about being on set on these films yeah yeah so maybe maybe that's what it is maybe that you yeah know, we're, we're looking for some interesting stories behind lady dragon <laughs> when maybe maybe it was just as simple as we got to bang these out and uh you know okay Oh, we're going to make a sequel. Yeah, Norton's not around for the sequel, so we'll just bring in Billy Drago and do the same thing again. Well, yeah. At this point, um, Tom, we'll, we'll start to wrap up here. Is there anything else about Cynthia Rothrock that you wanted to mention while we're while we're chatting about her? Uh, I just think, yeah, it would be nice to see her get you know a bit more of a comeback. Um, I've always been a little bit surprised that she hasn't been asked to board kind of like the Expendables franchise in any way um there's so many of these kind of nostalgic comebacks that it would be nice that she was kind of brought on board something like that yeah yeah because it was um uh for some reason i can't think of a oh, ronda rousey that he used in the third expendables yeah. movie and it is you're right it's, it's kind of it would have been nice to have her there and and i think too i mean i don't know if there's a fear i mean i wonder with Stallone, I never, you never know with him. Um, but I wonder if he's, well, because he could, he could have just not shot any scenes with Rothrock, but I wonder if he was afraid that like, if he stood next to Rothrock, everybody would know how short he is. And maybe he's, uh, cause I do think that those are things that he's maybe self-conscious. Of. I mean, I don't know. I don't know why he wouldn't have, have asked her to be a part of the films, but um, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm being too hard on him by, by saying that part. But, uh, but yeah, I, I agree with you with the names that they had in there. It, you know, a, a Rothrock would have been great. I, I remember hearing, though, that Gary Daniels also wasn't originally supposed to be in the first Expendables. And he kind yeah. of got on board in this smaller role. And then I guess, like, some of the ideas that he was he was throwing out there with Eric Roberts, they pitched them to Stallone, and he actually liked what he was saying. And that's how his, his role got beefed up a little bit more. So, you know, I think we, yeah. we took, I took for granted that, you know, oh, of course you'd have Gary Daniels in this movie. You know, why wouldn't you? But actually that wasn't always the case that he was, he wasn't supposed to be in the film originally, but also not to have the part that he ended up having. Yeah. I, I think that was the case really. I mean, he was essentially a, a stunt man initially. 
and yeah, he, his role got fleshed out a little bit. But I mean, the same thing happened with Mark Dacascos in uh, John Wick 3. So he was going to come on board in a smaller role. And then the guy who was going to be playing the main villain dropped out. And then kind of last minute, uh, Dacascos has to, he's offered the role, he takes it, because obviously you'd, t- you'd want to take it. Yeah. And he, he kind of flies out, you know, to go straight into the film, kind of launch himself into it as the lead villain. Yeah, which is which is amazing to think about that. And I mean, you know, I think Dacascos is another one like that, right, that we talk about who's like, you know, oh, he's going to be in this 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 uh, film adaptation of a big video game that you know ends up not taking off, and then he does Crying Freeman doesn't get released in theaters in the United States, and I think and I, I don't know if it got released anywhere outside of France in the theater, and it ends up not working out for him, and it's so yeah, it's kind of a similar situation there. I mean, I, I know Rothrock did Mercenaries, the Asylum female version of Expendables. Yeah which is also more like a Dirty Dozen. I think they tried to sell it as Expendables. It was more of a Dirty Dozen type movie. I think it could be really interesting to see an Expendables, like a direct-to-video Expendables with some of those names. I mean, you know, Don the Dragon, Rothrock, you know, Olivier Gruner, perhaps. Um, I mean, they had rumors at one point, didn't they? A film called The B-Team. Yeah. um, Which I think has ended up just being made into a a mobile game. But Yeah. yeah, at one point they were discussing kind of doing a movie in that kind of, in the expendables in the expendables vein yeah i mean i think that could be a lot of fun with with some of those names and and you know i mean how many you would you need to have you know four or five maybe at the most i mean you know that uh, yeah i mean if, if you could pull that t- together i think just think about rothrock and, and and wilson together and then yeah maybe gruner maybe daniel bernhardt um you know some of those names i think you could put those together and have something really really interesting yeah, I think so. I think there would be enough of an audience, you know, to to put something like that together and even just releasing on a streaming platform. Uh, I think, you know, there's enough popularity in those kind of people to do that. Even, you know, Tubi are making originals now. So going the kind of a- making something for Avod could even be something that would work as well. Yeah, I think it would be it would be perfect. It's just I guess it's just a matter of right get, getting it together and or you know for people having the the want for it or um or to, to 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 put it together. But it is almost kind of surprising, right? Like you said, I guess like they 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 had an idea for it and it didn't end up working out. Um, and they ended up making a a video game out of it instead. But you know, I think they could even do it in a way that's like maybe not so much, you know, biting on the Expendables, but more just like okay, let's put this crew together and have them, you know, go go out and and solve some kind of mission or something like that. I think, yeah, it could be a lot of fun with maybe Eric Roberts again as the baddie. It's not like he he's not available to play <laughs> the bad guy. Exactly, yeah. And I guess, you know, if you have to follow that kind of formula that everyone's doing where you'll get a certain star in for sort of two or three days or three or four days, you can kind of do it that way as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you wonder too with some of them like like Rothrock and, and um, Don the Dragon, if, you know, with them starting to maybe move behind the camera, if maybe somebody, one of them wants to direct that kind of movie. I mean, DeCasco's directed Manila, uh, Showdown of Manila, the Nevsky movie. So, you know, yeah. you wonder if maybe one of them comes forward and says, okay, I'm going to put this thing together and, you know, who, who's with me? And they get the names together and they make it happen. I mean, something like a Dudikoff maybe even too, bring, bring him back. Um, you know, I, I think that, that could be really fun. 
yeah for sure i think you know there would be a, there would be an audience there for it um because there's a lot of nostalgia and there's a lot of uh yeah warmth that goes towards these old kind of straight to video movies of that era because i think you know they they do hold up well now in comparison to maybe quite a few of the the more recent ones in the last sort of 10 15 years yeah i mean i think just talking about lady dragon um you know, like you talk about with the, the locations in particular, but also I think a, a movie shot on film in a location like that definitely has a look to it that's a little bit different from sort of the digital approach now where sort of everything's run through the filter and it, and it, and it you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it works in some cases, right? I think there are a lot of modern movies where it does, you can get it to work and it works well and it, and it, and it does exactly what you need it to do. But, you know, some of the nostalgia for these action movies, I think I, I always think about that kind of thing. Like you were talking about with Lady Dragon, it's like, it, it was nice to just see Indonesia there and see that as a location. And, and, you know, yes, it's probably much more expensive to shoot it on film than it is to put it in digital, run it through the filter so that, that the lighting is the same throughout the film. Um, but it, it is kind of nice to see it like that too. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, even back in sort of the early nineties, they would spend, you know, it, back then it would look like a small amount, but they would spend a fair a reasonable amount on making these films whereas you know the actual budget for a lot of the films that are equivalent these days are under a million dollars so right. yeah you know and maybe shooting in you know half the time yeah and maybe that's the problem for the this this sort of dtv expendables is like it's maybe the issue is getting the money for them to to do it where um getting all you know if only one of those names is in the movie, you pay that one name the money for the few days of shooting. But, you know, is it feasible to pay four of those names that money for the short amount? So maybe that's part of the, the sticking point with getting that movie made. Whereas from the expendable standpoint, you've got these names that were all big screen stars at one time who have this mindset of if we're going to get a movie on the big screen, we've all got to be in it together to because one of us isn't enough to get the name recognition to get on the, the big screen it's a little bit of a different dynamic there than it is with the direct to video stars. Yeah, definitely. And it's in that level of, you know, there's a big difference between the kind of the sub $10 million movies and you know, 60, $80 million movies that the expendables uh, fell into. So yeah, that kind of middle middle ground is a difficult place to find really. Yeah. So I guess it's a matter of, yeah, with the with kind of the modern environment, if, you know, I think it would, what would have to happen is probably all of the stars involved would have to be willing to take a haircut and do it more to get their names out there than to, but, you know, again, how do you tell someone like, oh, you're going to be working for, you know, just to get your name out there when there's somebody else offering you actual money that you you could use to, you know, sort of keep supplementing your lifestyle. Um, yeah, it's, it's probably, it's probably a, diff a difficult call. Yeah, I, I, mean, I guess that's where, if it's if there's one or two of them that are kind of a driving force behind making it so i know i know at one point in with the b team uh don wilson was kind of like the the forerunner of it he was the one who was kind of the most vocal about making it so whether he was going to produce it or have a you know direct influence in the film i don't know but i think it probably needs that you know because they all kind of know each other they've all worked together at some point or another so you know, it might be a case of, you know, two of them 
coming together and saying, let's make this film and then we'll get, you know, our mates in to do it with us. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, maybe, 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 you know, if any of them are listening to us talk about this, here, <laughs> like, yeah, hey, you know, there's a market out there. We know a lot of people that would want to watch it. So, yeah, um, I mean, I'll, I'll write it if they want. So, you know, yes, there we go. Cool. Yeah, that would be perfect. Yeah. If you, you know, you write it and then, you know, kind of, yeah, kind of start shipping it out there, or like shopping it. You're like, hey, what do you think of this? And yeah, you know, kind of see, you know, um, you know, it's it's interesting because you know, talking with um, uh, you know, Jonathan Sothcott, who who had Nemesis, you know, he's got kind of a stable of actors, and you know, Daniel really has a, a stable of actors. Um, and then like you know, they see Art Camacho, he kind of you know, he works with like Wilson and um and Rothrock Moore, and he has a few other names that he works with. It's kind of like you know, if one of those names kind of just says, hey, let's, let's, you know, like, maybe that's what it is. It's going to take some kind of element from one of those producers to sort of start pulling the names together and saying, hey, do we think we can do this? Um, but, you know, all of them seem, seem to also, you know, have a lot of other projects going on, especially like Zerilli, it seems like he's just always got like five things going on at once or something like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's difficult to find time sometimes. And, you know, these things can develop for years and then, you just never quite get off the ground yeah which i think probably is what happened with the b team that you know they had interest and then it never quite you know materialized into money coming in to shoot it or you know trying to find that moment where you can get seven or eight people together to shoot the film yeah yeah so that's you know that's probably some some challenges there maybe yeah maybe we need to shrink the cast down to like three or four of them and see <laughs> if we can you know pick a, any four out of like seven or eight if they can make it yeah. you know maybe that's how we have to do it all right excellent well well tom we're, we're about to wrap up here is there anything that you wanted to plug while, while, while we're finishing up here uh yeah just uh I, I guess i'll plug when darkness falls again so that will hopefully be out in a few more territories before the end of the year um going into next year and then uh next january uh renegade is coming out in the uk so that'll be january 30th um and then us should be similar kind of time so that will be confirmed soon but yeah those two particularly actually yeah and I, I should also remind people too that they should check out uh flickering myth for your articles because i think they're um yeah, I, I, I think they, they, they encapsulate a lot of what it's like to be a film, you know, someone who, who's watched movies from like the 80s and 90s to now. Um, it, it feels like you put a lot of modern trends in a really great context that, that uh, yeah, for me especially, I kind of like, yeah, I kind of, you know, sometimes don't think about those movies the ways that, that you bring them up, but I think it's a really great, uh, I think for anybody who's into action movies and uh, especially the kinds that we talk about, uh, your, your Flickering Myth articles are also great to talk about. We're great to, to check out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thanks very much. It's good to know someone's reading them anyway. Yes, no, no, I definitely <laughs> enjoy them. But yeah, well, for sure, just reiterating, when darkness falls, I think, um, you know, when, when this podcast drops, if, if it's in more location, I think everybody should really check that one out. And um, and, and Renegades, um, you know, I posted my Nemesis review just uh, earlier, and, um, you know, Jonathan, I, 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 he kind of mentioned, you know, he, he, he liked it. I, I, I enjoyed the movie. And I was like, well, you know, if Nemesis is any uh, any, any indication, I, I have, I'm excited for what Renegades has in store. And he's like, yeah, you're not going to be disappointed with Renegades. Well, I definitely hope so. 
I'm I'm really looking forward to it myself. And then, you know, hope possibly before the end of the year, I've got another one coming or going to camera with uh, Jonathan. So hopefully at the end of the year, we're going to be shooting Crackdown. Oh, yes. Yeah. So that'll be, that's definitely another kind of old school action film that kind of harkens back to canon and, you know, PM and things like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see that. I think on the website, it lists that one as, I think it's got the three films. It's got Nemesis, Renegades, and Crackdown, I think, um, sort of on the on the Shogun Films website. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, Jonathan's also shooting a film called Crossfire, which is kind of diehard in a mall. And that'll be, that'll be another good one as well. Okay, that that's the one. Okay, Crossfire is the one. I think I got my my C titles mixed up there. Okay, that's yeah. the one that's on the website. Yeah. Crossfire. So that's kind of next in line, and it's Crackdown right after. So hopefully, both of those will shoot before the end of the year. Yeah, I, I'm excited. I, I you know I think we we talked about Nemesis the last time you were on, and um, you know I think that I, I really liked what that you know I think we were both talking about how you really like what that movie did with home invasion kind of movies with gangster films. Um. You know that a lot of the, the the differences there, and then I think you you know when you were on last time we were talking about some of the things with Renegades, like some of the um the stars who are going to be in that, uh, guys like Danny Trejo as well. Um, so yeah, exciting stuff. I, I'm I'm you know after seeing Nemesis, I'm excited. I think you know uh, companies like Shogun Films that are kind of more more of an indie style that are that are um you know sort of doing things a little bit less you know kind of outside of the sort of the main uh, uh, studio. Uh, system it, it's it's kind of cool to kind of see what can be done with those kinds of movies even even with limited uh, budgets and things like that to see sort of some of the different things that are being done yeah for sure i mean you know also you know jonathan and daniel they're really kind of they really want to make good films as well as much as anything they don't just want to churn something out they want to make something that's going to really kind of impress people and you know really kind of please old school action fans. Yeah. I mean, that was definitely evident in nemesis where it's like, you just, the performances in there. I think we, we talked about Billy Murray's character when he, when he sets yeah. the car on fire that has the bad guy in it, he's just sort <laughs> of laughing, but but, but, you know, I mean, there were other elements to that that he had. And then we talked about, you know, um, Janine, uh, Narissa Southcott's performance where she kind of, yeah, yeah. She's the, fantastic in that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and she really liked that, you know, I, we, we kind of highlighted that, but a lot of that was what you and me just talking about, like sort of how she takes the traditional gangster's wife and, gives it more grit and edge that I think the film needed. And I mean, you know, Nick Moran's performance was just, you know, uh, fantastic. I think, I think that was one a lot of people were, were, were really keying in on him was his, which I think was great, but I think a lot of great performances there, but I think also from a story standpoint, like sort of creating those characters and from a director standpoint to sort of let the actors do what they're doing there and not, um, you know, not, not sort of overdo it, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, the way that the, you know, it wasn't heavy handed, I guess I could say, um, with that. And so, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, to for see, sure. Yeah. 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 So I, I'm excited for Renegades. I'm excited to see what comes next. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, me too. I mean, as much as, as anything, even though I wrote it as a fan of the genre, I'm just really kind of looking forward to it as well. Yeah, it, it should be a really good one. And I, I think it's it's interesting in your case because you've got kind of those two, you, you know, When Darkness Falls is, is a, a very different kind of project um, to, to Renegades. Uh, but I still think for people listening, it's it's definitely worth a watch. And of course, you know, we have the podcast episode that we did where there's much more behind the scenes talk about it. 
yeah, it's just another one. It's one of those kind of old school films that I liked. The kind of early 90s pot boilers. I really kind of was into those films, those kind of thrillers. So, yeah, that was another one that was, you know, one to tick off my list. Yeah, that one definitely works in that vein. I think that it, it definitely has the kind of the slow burn, as we talked about. Um, and yeah. and, it, and I, I think for me, you know, I'm, I'm used to these high octane actioners so i'm used to you know like you know we're talking about these two movies lady dragon and china o'brien where it's like you know uh, fight scenes right from the beginning and just sort of every 10 minutes you're getting a good fight scene um you know i think my brain is kind of used to those but i think you know if switching gears and, and sort of changing uh that mindset if you let the movie like you know like i think in a movie like yours like uh when darkness falls you know, trusting that the payoff is going to be there, that it's going to have the slow boil, um, the payoff is really fantastic. It's really worth trusting the the process there. Yeah, well, that that's our that was our intention, and uh, you know, making the the locations a kind of another character in the film. Yeah. Um, you know, that's part that's a key part of really having that kind of slow burn and involving the audiences to make that. The locations feel like another character in the film. Yeah, and I think the way we, we talk about the way you use the Scottish Highlands as, as both open and expansive, but then also claustrophobic, it, it that combination, that, that duality there played really well in both the daylight scenes and the nighttime scenes. Yeah, I mean, we, we really set out to do that and um, you know the sort of final act where you're getting a few twists and turns. That's the sort of that's the element that kind of harks back to all those films that were coming out in the early '90s, where you know there would always be like a, a thriller when there'd be twists and turns. And we were kind of into that in a big way, myself and Nathan, the director. Yeah, that's a good point. And you know, there were so many of those movies in the '90s. Um... That, that worked and it was almost like there was a market for them. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, um, I mean, almost every actor you can think of did one of those moves. I mean, even guys like Jim Belushi were doing them. And yeah. and it it was one of those things that you could always pop one of those on, um, you know, either rent it, um, you know, or, or find it on, on cable or something. And and it was always good for a nice like evening uh, watch. And I think that's that's kind of where when Darkness Falls comes in. I think it's a it's a really great like Saturday night watch for people just staying in and looking for a movie. Yeah, I mean I hope so. So I hope we have a, um, another boost on it when it's you know more widely available on AVOD. Yeah, I, I think when this podcast um, airing is probably going to coincide with at least in the United States, it sounds like from the timeline you're talking about, it, it should be available on more streaming services um, by the time. I think when I put the, uh, the podcast out, I'll probably take a look and see. Um, and I can always put links yeah. in the, the description and that kind of thing. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you very much. Yeah. 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 Well, I think we're hopefully by then, we're looking at early September, I, I believe, uh, Tubi and Peacock. So they, those are going to be two uh, big platforms for us, I think. Yeah, and I think that's about when this this episode's going to be aired. So, like people that are listening to it now, it's probably early September <laughs> as you're listening. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, so hopefully that will we'll, that that you know that'll be the case then. All right, excellent. Well, well, Tom, you know, thank you again for coming on. This was a really great conversation, and I, especially Cynthia Rothrock. She's one that um, 
I think on the podcast we haven't talked about her as much. Um, so it was really great to kind of really get stuck in and, and discuss uh, her career, but also talk about some of the projects that you've got coming up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've had a good time. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you as well. And again, uh, as we're wrapping up, When Darkness Falls um, on Amazon Prime here in the United States. Also, uh, uh, you can get it on DVD as well. And then, you know, we're thinking as you're listening, it's probably also, uh, you know, to be uh, other uh, streaming platforms as well. All right. Thank you again, Tom. It was, it was great having you on. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye, everyone. sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.